Testing one, two, three. Testing one, two, three. This is Radio Free Mormon on the air, broadcasting behind enemy lines. Tonight's episode, part three of our interview with Dr. David Bakavoy. Dr. Bakavoy, how are you doing? So great this morning. It's wonderful to be back on Radio Free Mormon. Thank you so much, RFM. Well, you are so welcome. It is an honor to have you back. I know our audience has enjoyed very much the first two segments of this interview. And if I can just set the stage for what we're going to be talking about today, because mainly what we're going to be focusing on is Abraham chapter three, the astronomy chapter, if I can call it that. It's not only about astronomy, but it deals a lot with astronomy. And if I could just set the stage here, we've already talked about Abraham chapters one and two in the last interview. And we also, in the last interview, talked about Abraham chapters four and Five, though I don't think we got into that quite as much as we had hoped at the time. But we did not talk about Abraham chapter 3, and there is a great deal to be said about Abraham chapter 3. Now, in the framework of the book of Abraham, Abraham chapter 3 serves a very important function because what it does is it is the bridge between the first two chapters of Abraham and the last two chapters of Abraham. Not only does it come in the middle as chapter three, but it also functions as a bridge and subject matter between the two things. Because as our audience will recall, when we last left Abraham, at the end of chapter two, he was traveling and he was almost ready to get into Egypt, to go down into Egypt. The stage is set for him to go down into Egypt, but in the narrative we have in the book of Abraham, which up to that point was following the Genesis account, It does not proceed to get Abraham into Egypt because something important needs to happen first, and that is that Abraham needs to receive his knowledge of astronomy from the Lord because that is what Abraham is going to be teaching when he gets into Egypt. Now, I'll say a few more things about that in a minute, but getting back to the structure, Abraham chapter 3 could be divided into two parts. The first half of the chapter is talking about astronomy and astronomical bodies, and it's also talking about time and how time is measured and reckonings and times of reckonings. But it gets halfway through, and then it segues into talking about the gods and the divine beings that existed prior to the creation of the earth, and then starts talking about, uh, in sort of vague terms, some kind of dispute in heaven regarding uh, God had a plan and somebody who's unnamed in the text said that he would do what it was that God wanted him to do. And then somebody else who had apparently wanted to do the same thing, uh, he didn't like that. And so he ended up getting thrown out and he kept not his first estate. And at that day, many followed after him. Okay. So that's the end of chapter three. And that sets the stage for the bridge to chapter four where now, having established these gods that exist, or these divine beings, many of the noble and great ones, who exist prior to the creation of the earth, then it starts in chapter 4 with Joseph Smith's reworking of Genesis chapters 1 and 2, but now he's going to introduce into that text some of the things that were very much on his mind, and which he had developed between 1835, when he translated the first two chapters of Abraham, and 1842, when he translated the last three chapters of Abraham. And among those things that he's going to work into the text, and we talked about some of these last time, are the fact that there is a plurality 
of God. So every time Genesis says, and God made the heavens and the earth, and God did this, and God did that, and God did some other thing, right? He makes it plural, the gods, throughout. So that's one thing he does. Another thing that's very important to him in this reworking of the creation account is that it's important to Joseph Smith to now discount the idea of creation ex nihilo because he has learned through his studies with Joshua Satius back in 1836, the, uh, the Jewish rabbi who came and taught Hebrew to the school of the prophets, that the word, not only Elohim can be plural, but also the word, I think it's barau in Hebrew, doesn't only mean create, but it can also mean fashion, form, or organize. Is that correct? First off, I, I don't mean to be totally ignoring you here, David. <laughs> no, no I, this is a great intro. I, um, the, the technical form of the verb would be pronounced bara. It's in, the, it's in Genesis chapter 1, verse 1. Um, it starts off bereshit, bara, which is in the beginning. And then you have the verb form, which is a third person, masculine, singular, inflected form of create with Elohim as the as the subject. And as we discussed in one of the previous podcasts, Elohim, though technically a concretized abstract plural form, I know I'm throwing a lot of grammar here, but as a plural form there, it is actually intended to mean God singular and that God creates. Now, in response to your your question, let's just um, state that it, um, yes, there. this is one of those things that where Joseph Smith is actually 100% on target in terms of his analysis of of ancient theology, because we really do not have evidence for creation ex nihilo, which is so important to later Judaism and Christianity until the Hellenistic era. Uh, So the creation accounts in Genesis chapter 1 and in Genesis chapter 2 that appear in Abraham 4 and 5, revised into the book of Abraham, um, present creation through organization. We can, we'll actually talk about that in greater detail as we move throughout the podcast, as we compare the cosmology in chapter three with what we see in chapter four. Okay, great. And so along with that idea of it's not creation ex nihilo anymore, God is organizing, or excuse me, the gods are organizing matter. And the idea that matter has no beginning and no end. It is eternal. The elements are eternal. Joseph Smith, or God teaches us in another place in the Doctrine and Covenants. The elements are eternal, and so are the spirits or the intelligences. He seems to use those two terms interchangeably. Spirit is intelligence, and intelligence is spirit, at least in the book of Abraham and later on in the King Follett discourse, when Joseph Smith uses the two terms interchangeably. But these two things spirit, intelligence, they also have no beginning. They are uncreated, and yet God organizes them just as he takes the pre-existing and eternally existing materials that's going to end up being used to create this earth and organizes those as well in the creation account. Your thoughts? Uh, That's wonderful. In fact, um, you know, what we should should perhaps do then is go ahead and and consider um, where is Joseph Smith getting this idea from that that connects Abraham with astronomy? Um, because because that's really significant, and a lot of apologists have have used chapter three to argue for the book's ancient authenticity um, because Abraham is connected with astronomy, and that is that's a that's 
that's just a, a very problematic uh, argument. So maybe we should take it off from there. Okay, so let me set the background for you on this. Um, we know that the book of Abraham has Abraham learning astronomy from God so that he can teach it to the Egyptians. By the way, 315 makes that explicit. And the Lord said unto me, Abraham, I show these things unto thee. That's all the planetary systems, right? I show these things unto thee before ye go into Egypt that ye may declare all these words. So there it makes it explicit. That's why he's receiving this knowledge. So he can teach it in Egypt. Now, the book of Abraham never gets Abraham actually into Egypt with the possible exception of the explanations to facsimile three, where at the bottom of that, it talks about Abraham is reasoning upon the principles of astronomy in the king's court. That's at the very bottom of the explanation in facsimile three, but that's about as close as it gets to talking about Abraham doing just that and reasoning on those principles of astronomy and teaching those principles to the Egyptians once he makes it into Egypt. The biblical text, however, in Genesis, says nothing about Abraham teaching astronomy when he gets to Egypt. And so the apologists look at that and say, well, wait a second, we have other sources outside the Bible, extra biblical sources that talk about Abraham teaching astronomy when he got to Egypt. And that is a huge bullseye for the book of Abraham. What say ye, David Bakavoy? You know, as we mentioned uh, in one of the previous podcasts, RFM, um, the term Chaldean that is used all throughout the book of Abraham is anachronistic. But the Chaldean people associated with Babylon were well known in the ancient world for their astronomy. So much so that in later languages, including in Greek and in Aramaic, that term becomes synonymous with astronomer. So this is well known in the ancient world and would have been well known to the people of Joseph Smith's time period. I'm, I'm literally just pulling off of my bookshelf. I'm sitting next to it here. I've got a copy of the complete works of Josephus. And our audience will remember that Josephus is a first century Jewish historian who, Jewish historian who, who writes a lot about the Jewish war against Rome and then um, talks a, a lot about Jewish traditions regarding uh, the patriarchs and, and, and really the biblical material. So I'm pulling off my my translation here that is a very famous one from William Whiston that Joseph Smith and his contemporaries would have absolutely had access to. And I'm opening it up here to chapter 10 and I'm on page 33 of Josephus's antiquities of the Jews, which speaks about Abraham. And I'm going to go to um, chapter, actually, sorry, I'm in chapter eight. Oh, I'm in chapter eight. Yeah. First I'm two, chapter- I'm guessing. Yes, you do. <laughs> Very good. You, have it all, you are well more organized than I am. Can I, can I share that then? Yeah, please. So we read in verse 2 of, of, of chapter 8, whereas the Egyptians were formally addicted to different customs and despised one another's sacred and accustomed rites and were very angry one with another on that account, Abram conferred with each of them. And confuting the reasonings, they made use of everyone for their own practices, demonstrated that such reasonings were vain and void of truth, whereupon he was admired by them in those, in those conferences as a very wise man and one of great sagacity. When he, dis, when he discoursed on any subject, he undertook, and this not only in understanding it, 
but in persuading other men also to assent to him. He can, and this is the money part, RFM, he communicated to them arithmetic and delivered to them the science of astronomy. For before Abram came into Egypt, they were unacquainted with those parts of learning. For that science came from the Chaldeans into Egypt and from thence to the Greeks also. And, and so um, if someone in Joseph Smith's era was going to produce a pseudepigraphic book of Abraham, um, as Joseph Smith does, writing about Abraham's life experience, it would be expected that we would encounter a chapter like we have in chapter three, where Abraham learns about cosmology and understands the stars and is then prepared to take that into Egypt and share that knowledge with the Egyptians. Absolutely. By the way, when you say that Joseph Smith absolutely had Josephus with him, I just want to insert here the historical basis for that, which is that we know that Oliver Cowdery had a copy of the book of Josephus and was acquainted with its contents as early as 1835. Yes. Because in an article that he wrote uh, about the papyrus, he mentions, yes, yes, that other papyrus, right? Um, He mentions that there were certain drawings on it and certain figures and what we would call facsimiles if they were reproduced, but this one didn't get reproduced, but he talks about it as representing the pillar of Enoch. So he's looking at one of these scrolls, seeing a figure on it, which he says, this is the, the pillar of Enoch as referred to in the book of Josephus. Yep. So in other words, Oliver Cowdery in 1835 knows about Josephus sufficiently enough to know that Josephus talks about the pillar of Enoch. So I think it's pretty clear then that Joseph Smith who's pretty darn close to Oliver Cowdery, would also have been equally as familiar with the contents of the book of Josephus, including chapter 8, verse 2, which you just read. Absolutely. Very, very good, important background. Thank you for reminding our audience of that point. And I'll add that I think going back to 1835, and I've never written this and I haven't seen it argued, but I believe that it was Joseph Smith's intent to provide a chapter like chapter three in the book of Abraham all along. And I I make that argument based upon two points, RFM. Mm -hmm. One, I would take us back to chapter one, which was done in 1835, verse 28, where we read Abraham making this statement. I shall endeavor hereafter, meaning after chapter one, right, to delineate the chronology running back from myself, which is the start of chapter one, to the beginning of the creation. For the records have come into my hands, which I hold into this present time. And if we think about what he's saying there, to the beginning of creation, I think, RFM, this gives us a hint as to how far Joseph Smith intended to take the book of Abraham. Some people wonder why he stopped when when he did. And um, what was he going to do after that? Would he then continue the story of Abraham and get all the way to the Akedah, the binding of Isaac? No, um, there wasn't enough scroll to justify translating um, that that much material, number one, contrary to John Gee and Carrie Milstein's argument about the lengthy missing papyri. Um, But on top of that, 
he tells us right here that the goal is to start with the Abraham story and then take us back through the beginning of the creation. So I think that that was the goal all along. And, and then I'm going to also add to that the very important point that chapter three in the book of Abraham is a revised version of the um, Egyptian a grammar and alphabet, which was produced earlier in 1835. And Dan Vogel, in particular, has made very strong historical arguments to show that that is the case. Can I see your Abraham chapter 1, verse 28, and up you, Abraham chapter 1, verse 31? Sure. Could you read that too? I think that makes it even more clear. Oh, excellent. Let me, let me jump back. So you said, take us to 33, did you say? No, the very last verse, 31 in chapter one. Okay. But the records of the fathers, even the patriarchs, concerning the right of priesthood, the Lord my God preserved in my own hands, therefore, oh, wonderful, a knowledge of the beginning of the creation and also of the planets and of the stars, as they were made known unto the fathers, have I kept even unto this day. And I shall endeavor to write some of these things upon this record for the benefit of my posterity that shall come after me. Wonderful. It is explicitly stated, isn't it? Yes, it is. And this apparently is the last verse that Joseph Smith translated in 1835. And then we have to wait seven years for him to get started again at the beginning of Abraham chapter 3. Now, actually, actually, wait just a second here, because now that I'm thinking about it, now that's Abraham chapter one, so that was translated in 1835. Uh, I did misspeak because he goes on to translate the rest of uh, Abraham chapter two in 1835, or at least almost all of chapter two, and then he commences again in 1842. Um, yeah, so this is something that was very interesting to me because this gets very confusing now. If we can talk briefly about, by the way, did you have anything else you wanted to say about no. Josephus? No, no, no. I think that that sets it up perfectly. And of course, he, as we know, he was taking advantage of Adam Clark and perhaps other commentaries um, to help produce his scriptural accounts. And we should not underestimate, although apologists are want to do so, how much education Joseph Smith had. He participated in debate schools. He um, participated. His father, of course, was an educator. He had access to library material. I mean, there's been a lot of study that has come out as of late to show that Joseph Smith was far more educated than most apologists have, have traditionally assumed. Yes, and I think he was largely uh, self-educated as well. He had a keen native intellect and curiosity and ability to not only uh, learn information, but also to make very interesting and unusual connections between different pieces of information. Yes. So we've got this very interesting uh, idea here. Um, I don't want to miss this other point. I'll bring it up in a, in a minute. But this idea that naturally leads into this is the idea that it's very confusing how it is that the book of Abraham represents Abraham as getting this knowledge about the astronomy. Because we just read there that back in 1835, when that part was translated, he already has this knowledge. It's in the records that he obtained from the fathers. And there's no information in Abraham about how he gets these records, right? It just says they're preserved and he has them. So we don't know how he has them, but he gets them. By the way, 
tangent here. This is similar to the beginning of the Book of Mormon, where Nephi gets the brass plates. He gets the records that belong to the fathers. And we know how Nephi gets those brass plates. There's a famous story at the beginning of the Book of Mormon about how Nephi gets the brass plates. But if you look at 1 Nephi chapter 5, we know what's on the brass plates because it's described there. And it's basically all the prophets going all the way back to the beginning and also many of the prophecies of Jeremiah. And one of the parts that I neglect focusing on, and which I did this morning in preparation, is that there's also something very important in those brass plates to Nephi, which is the genealogy of Lehi going all the way back to Joseph. So we have a similar record that has to be obtained, that has to be preserved among the Nephites with a similar genealogy, i.e. the fathers, and going back to the beginning and to the creation, it says, I think, in First Nephi 5, to these records now that come into Abraham's hand with his genealogy going back to the fathers and a knowledge of the beginning of the creation. So just pointing that out here. So that was a tangent. By the way, did you have any thoughts about that tangent? I absolutely do. Because if, you, if we think about it, um, in, it, to me, chapter one, then when he learns about these things from the records of the fathers that are handed down to him, that really reflects more, uh, I, a bit loosely, but it does connect better with Josephus and his statement that Abraham had received that knowledge um, from because he was from the Chaldeans and, and was connected with that people so famous anciently with astronomy. But if we compare and contrast that RFM with what is said in chapter three, remembering what you taught us that eight, that eight, that the, that material was produced in chapter one in 1835. And it's years later that we, that he picks it up and gets to chapter three. Finally, Abraham is not going to learn from the records about astronomy. Instead, he will learn in verse one through the Urim and Thummim, he'll receive revelation on this matter. And then later on in chapter three, at some point, the Lord himself will begin speaking to Abraham and giving him that information. So what we're seeing here from my perspective is, um, is a wrinkle, like we talked about, a little bit of dissonant. Because in chapter one, Abraham is going to learn about that from his the fathers and the records. Whereas when Joseph Smith picks up the story years later in chapter three, uh, then Abraham learns about that material from the Urim and Thummim and from the Lord directly. Right, exactly. And this is part of this confusion, like you say, a wrinkle uh, in the text, because first off, it's going to be the records. And at the end of Abraham chapter one, for all intents and purposes, all he's going to be doing is recounting what he has in the records. And like you say, that accounts that accords with Josephus and Abraham bringing that knowledge of astronomy out of Babylon yep, into Absolutely. Egypt. Now, Abraham 3 is going to change that yep. because apparently the book of Abraham doesn't really want Abraham bringing the knowledge of astronomy from Babylon into Egypt. Instead, it's going to be the true knowledge of astronomy, not the Babylonian stuff, but the true knowledge, which is revealed to Abraham directly from God himself. And even in Abraham chapter three, there's all this confusion about how it is that Abraham receives this knowledge. Like you said, first off in Abraham chapter three, verse one, and I, Abraham, had the Urim and Thummim. Well, of course, Abraham's going to have a Urim and Thummim. I mean, Joseph Smith has a Urim and Thummim. Doesn't everybody have a Urim and Thummim? You have a Urim and Thummim, don't you? Absolutely. All, all prophets. It's called, it's, called a, it's, it's called an iPhone, right? 
Yeah, that is correct. It is like the iPhone. <laughs> that was my bad elder Uchtdorf impression. <laughs> Formerly President Uchtdorf. Now I love Uchtdorf. that you and I have all these great inside jokes that we can like, you know, communicate back and forth to one another. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he's got the Urim and Thummim. And then in verse four, he continues with that theme. And the Lord said unto me, by the Urim and Thummim. And then he says that Kolob was after the manner of the Lord. So he's getting this revelation in chapter three through the Urim and Thummim, at least so it appears at first. But then we get to verse 11, and we suddenly find out, wait a second, this isn't just the Urim and Thummim, God is making a personal visit. Verse 11, thus I, Abraham, talked with the Lord face to face, as one man talketh with another. So suddenly now, God is there. It's not just Urim and Thummim, however Abraham's doing it, whether he has a stovepipe hat or something else to put the Urim and Thummim in so he can uh, get this vision about the stars. But now God comes down and God is talking with him. And that theme from verse 11 is continued in, let me see here. I had it a second ago. I have my scriptures open before me. Oh, it'll come to me. It'll come to me. But uh, that theme is continued further on about God coming down and talking with Abraham face to face. But then if that's not confusing enough, by the way, David, but then something else happens in the very next verse, chapter 12, which is the way that Adam, excuse me, Abraham gets his knowledge of astronomy. Could you read verse 12? Yeah, let me pull that up. And he said unto me, my son, my son, which reminds us, of course, of, of Moses' interaction with the Lord in Joseph Smith's revision of Genesis that appears there, right? Yes. Son, my son, and his hand was stretched out. Behold, I will show you all these. Meaning the, meaning the stars and the planets, right? Yes. He put his hand upon mine eyes, and I saw those things which his hands had made, which were many, and they multiplied before mine eyes, and I could not see the end thereof. Right. So in verse 11, first off, verse 1, Urim and Thummim, mm -hmm. verse 11, God speaks to him face to face, and he's not just, it says what he's saying to him, and he told me of the works which his hands had made. And so apparently, verse 11, he's telling him about it, and now verse 12, he's going to show him. And he does it by this very interesting way. I find this really a neat touch, that God stretches out his hand, puts his hand over Abraham's eyes, and then Abraham sees the stars and all the works of God. Yeah. It reminds, it reminds me of the story of Jesus, right, healing the blind person in the uh, Gospel of Mark. The Gospel of Mark is the only one to have that story where um, Jesus will take the mud and spit upon it and put it on, and the man sees things gradually, right, because Jesus lays his hands upon his, his eyes in that sense. And at first, remember, the man says, um, oh, I'm, I'm kind of seeing people, but they look like trees, and he was mm -hmm. born you know, it doesn't make a lot of sense because he was born blind, so he wouldn't know what trees looked like. But that's really not the point. The point <laughs> of is is that the man is receives a gradual um, healing as opposed to an instantaneous um, change. And that, just as a side note, ties into the theme of the Gospel of Mark, where nobody knows really who Jesus was, and it's only gradually revealed that he is the the son of son of God. And people start to understand it a little bit at a time. So thematically, it links with this thesis from the Gospel of Mark and reminds us of, of, of that idea. Yes, that's fascinating insight.
So now if we can just talk about the first part of chapter three that talks about the astronomy before it segues into the divine beings. And by the way, once again, from this um, more general, broader look at the structure, what ends up happening is a very, very nice literary device here because there's going to be a number of verses up through verse 17 about the astronomy, regardless of how Abraham comes to this knowledge, whether it's from the records or from the Urim and Thummim, if I'm speaking to him or from the hand over the eyes. He gets the knowledge. It's recorded there in the first half of Abraham chapter 3. So if we talk about this, this astronomy has gotten a lot of attention from apologists over the years. And there have been a number of different tax taken. That's, that's hard to say. Tax taken on this material. Now, the first one I want to talk about, I just want to talk about three different views or three different approaches that different apologists have made to this material in order to prove that it's authentic in order to prove that it's true and correct and really scripture. And the first one has to do with Jack West. Now, I know I talked to you on the phone about Jack West. Do you remember the book, The Case for the Book of Mormon? I don't, I don't know that I do. Well, when I joined the church, it had been made, I think he, he did a talk, uh, he wrote a book, and then it was made into like a, a comic book but not really a comic book, but there were characters in it. It was really easy to follow. And the idea was that the book, of, no, not the case for the book. It was the Book of Mormon on trial. Oh, okay. Okay. The Book of Mormon on trial, where the Book of Mormon's on trial, and you have these attorneys who are uh, trying to prosecute it and throwing yes. all these arguments against it. And the Book of Mormon is there and calling witnesses and showing how he confutes all of these arguments and really is true. Yes. Okay. Yes. Now, I, now I'm with you. Yeah. Okay, that was based on a book by Jack West. That was his idea based upon his story about when he was in law school and all this stuff, and he presented a, the case for the Book of Mormon. Okay, not getting too much off on that tangent, but Jack West also did a number of other talks, which were recorded, and one of them had to do with the, the Word of Wisdom. Another one had to do with the Book of Abraham, which is why I bring up Jack West, because his approach to the Book of Abraham astronomy material was that this is revealing the way things really are in the universe when it's talking about astronomy. It was not only way in advance of Abraham and his understanding, or at least the, the cultures of his day, their understanding about astronomy, but it was way in advance of Joseph Smith too. So here's Joseph Smith revealing stuff that is way advanced because it's the way things really are. And the scientists are still trying to catch up to what Joseph Smith revealed in the book of Abraham chapter three in the astronomy chapter. And he even offered a reward. And I don't know how much it was, but it was money. That's why I remember it. That's why it caught my attention. I don't know if it was a hundred dollars or a thousand dollars, but he said he was offering for everybody who could come up with a connection between the book of Abraham chapter three and modern advances in astronomy. Mm. So his view is Abraham astronomy. This is the way things really are. It's the future of astronomy. It's the, it's the things that science hasn't even uncovered yet. All right, so that's his view about the book of Abraham. And every time science catches up with the book of Abraham and finds out something that matches the book of Abraham, by the way, uh, these weren't really great connections. I, <laughs> I hate to break it to you, but spoiler alert. But that was his idea. So every and time, me, yeah. Let me jump in and say that um, I'm not as familiar with his work as I am uh, the later work that has been done, uh, particularly by Michael Rhodes, 
um, who makes similar arguments, um, right? I mean, he uh, he did it. He did a little article um, with a co-author. Um, I think the last name was Moody, if I remember correctly, and it it was um, in the Astronomy Papyrus and Covenant book published by Farms back in 2005 with John Gee and Brian Hoglid as editors. And in that article, it was called Astronomy and Creation in the Book of Abraham. Um, he, in essence, makes the same claim uh, that it's that this is actually a reflection of, of contemporary science and things that we know to be true today. Oh, okay, great. I actually got the book, but I don't remember that paper. Yeah, yeah, he did. He did another one too. Uh, you know, in back in 2011, I remember um, on for the Religious Studies Center. And anyway, that's that's something that he tends to argue is is that point that you're making that I think that was the maybe the first apologetic argument was on and chapter three was namely that it is a reflection of what we know to be true regarding astronomy in the modern era. Okay, so that's one approach, Jack West and Michael Rhodes, that they champion. But then there's another approach from another apologist, Daniel Peterson. And you remember that, was it 15 or 20 years, he came out with a, I'm sure he wrote an article, but then he did a, uh, a video on it in a presentation called, And I Saw the Stars. Mm-hmm. Yeah. In fact, that article actually came out in the same book that Michael Rhodes' article came out in, interesting enough, um, that Astronomy, Papyrus, and Covenant. And he co-authored, Peterson co-authored that with Bill Hamblin and John Gee. Oh, well, can you tell the audience what the argument in I Saw the Stars is? Yeah, you know, um, I I can. In fact, um, let me pull it up here. I'm going to pull up. Back in 2017, John Gee, who was a co-author of that article, basically summarized it in his um, Book of Abraham introduction that he did for Desert Book. Recall that, that, that work. Um, I'm going to pull that up because I have a PDF of it. And here's the section where he gives a a summary of it. In essence, what those three apologists are going to uh, argue is that chapter three presents what, what cosmologists would refer to as a geocentric model of the universe, meaning that the earth is at the center of the universe and everything rotates around it. Um, So here's Guy in his book, and he summarizes it this way. The astronomy in the book of Abraham uses as its point of reference the earth upon which thou standest, which he is quoting Abraham 3, verses 3, 5, and 7. Then continuing with Guy's summary, it mentions various heavenly bodies, such as the stars, among which is Kolob. These provide a fixed backdrop for the heavens. Among the stars are various bodies that move in relation to the fixed backdrop, each of which is called a planet or a light. Though since the sun and moon and certain stars are are each also called a planet, we should not think of them as necessarily being what we call planets which is very confusing to me that, you know, I'm like that. Why are you going to make that argument? They're, they're called planets. And it's clear that Joseph Smith views them as a, as planets. Not only do we see that specifically stated in chapter three, but in the cosmology that is presented in early Mormonism, whether we turn to uh, texts like DNC section 76, DNC section 88, or 
maybe we can quote one of these later, um, the very fascinating patriarchal blessings that Joseph Smith's father, Joseph Smith Sr., would would present to early church figures talking about um, the planets and stars and sun and moon that are inhabited um, with human beings like us. Anyway, let me get back to Guy. So I left off. Um, he says, we should not think of them as necessarily being what we call planets. And I interjected and say, well, why the hell not? Continuing, each of these planets is associated with its times and seasons in the revolution thereof, quoting Abraham 3, verse 4. These lights revolve around something, states Guy, and that is the fixed reference point, the earth upon which thou standest. The book of Abraham thus presents a geocentric astronomy, like almost all ancient astronomies, including ancient Egyptian astronomy, end of quote. And I think that that's a good summary then of this model that um, is has become very popular amongst apologists. And, you know, I've, uh, I listened to a, uh, a, a brief podcast that was recently given on proofs for the book of Abraham and the um, fair Mormon apologist, Michael Ash, very good person who relies heavily upon this, this sort of um, these sorts of apologetic arguments summarizes it for a lay audience. So it's, it's, I think that's the, that's the, the predominant role or the predominant viewpoint, I should state, that apologists now are using to interpret chapter three, the geocentric model, as you mentioned, connected with Daniel Peterson and also Bill Hamblin. Right. So the thing I wanted to do here was contrast both of these, because according to Jack West and Michael Rhodes, the book of Abraham portrays the future of astronomy from Joseph Smith's time, the future of astronomy, the astronomy that the scientists will figure out. Daniel Peterson et al., go the other direction and say, no, what it represents is the ancient astronomy. It's the past of astronomy, the astronomy that the Egyptians knew when Abraham was there among them as recorded in the Bible and as recorded in the um, the book of Abraham. He finally gets there. At least we know he will get there in the book of Abraham. And so we've got both of those bases covered, right? And both of those show that the book of Abraham is true. Whether it's the future understanding or the past understanding, that's okay. And then I wanted to add to that what Terrell Givens would say about mm -hmm. Abraham chapter 3. I bring up his name, and I'm sure you have an understanding. I don't know that he's actually addressed chapter 3, but he's addressed pretty much everything else in Joseph Smith's um, translation of the Bible. And yeah. what would Terrell Givens say? You know, Terrell Givens has um, a brand new book out on this um, that was published by Oxford University Press. It's not just the book of Abraham, but the title of the book is called of uh, the Pearl of Greatest Price, if I remember correctly. I have not read it. I read um, Colby Townsend's review of the book. Um, and I, uh, you know, and I it, it piqued my interest enough, RFM, that I went on to Amazon and kind of uh, glanced through some of the Book of Abraham section, you know, that you can pull up as a preview. But I have to state that I am, um, I'm not entirely familiar with what Terrell does well, I'll tell you. Okay. I'll Let's tell you. Because what he does uh, is what he says is that what Joseph Smith is, is an eclectic aggregator. That's not his phrase. I think that's Anthony Miller's uh, phrase, but it's the same idea. In other words, he takes ideas that he learns in his society from different books, different researches, talking with different people, and then he picks and chooses and incorporates them by means of what Terrell Givens calls 
his prophetic imagination. And then he combines all these different ideas he gets from different sources into his scriptures. And so Terrell Givens' view would be that the book of Abraham is true because they're from contemporary sources of Joseph Smith upon which he drew. So between Jack West, Daniel Peterson, and Terrell Givens, you've got the future of the book of Abraham shows it's true. Science is catching up to it. You've got the past of the book of Abraham, how it was understood anciently with the geocentric model that shows it's true. And then you've got Terrell Givens saying, well, if it shows the contemporary stuff that was being talked about in Joseph Smith's day, then that's what shows it's true. So they've got all their bases covered, past, present, and future. Everything shows the book of Abraham is true between all of them. Interesting. Interesting. Okay. That makes sense because I am familiar with Terrell's works and that certainly sounds like his approach to what Joseph Smith does. Um, it actually is very similar RFM to the, to the uh, perspective I apologetically argued for in my book, authoring the old Testament when I addressed this material. Um, the, I made the connection apologetically between what Joseph Smith was doing and drawing upon ancient and modern sources to create the, these types of scriptural text with um, Joseph Smith's view of divine creation in rejecting, going back to what we were talking about a few minutes ago, in rejecting the traditional Judeo-Christian construct of creation ex nihilo, Joseph Smith presents God as organizing um, creation through chaos and what I argued for in that book that I did is that Joseph Smith, therefore, is, is uh, emulating divine creation in the production of these, of these sacred texts. And so Terrell's approach is, is very similar then to the one that I apologetically presented in that, in that volume. Let me add really quickly, though, that, you know, there actually is, I guess, maybe perhaps a fourth possibility or a fourth apologetic model that was presented by uh, Carrie Milstein. Um, Carrie did an article, let me see. Um, Carrie did an article back in, in 2009 for a, um, for a CES uh, journal uh, titled Religious Educator. And it, back in 2009, uh, Milstein uh, wrote this article called Encircling Astronomy and the Egyptians, an approach to Abraham chapter three. Are you familiar with that? No. Okay. Well, it, it's kind of another way of looking at it. And um, in essence, I, I guess the best way to describe it is it's kind of an in inverse of the model that Peterson, Hamblin, and Gee put forward. Um, instead of having the earth as the center of the cosmos, um, Milstein argues that the book of Abraham's astronomy places Kolob at that center. And so um, the model that he presents there is one that the, uh, the astronomy, he acknowledges, of course, with Peterson that, that it, it's, it's ancient, but the main focus should be as on Kolob um, as a, as, and the spiritual truths that are, that are found in there through typology. Um, so a, one of the one of the things that I believe, if I remember it correctly, and I know others have done, is that they will link Kolob, which is the planet nearest um, the throne where God resides, with Jesus Christ, who is nearest the Father, and should be there for our spiritual focus. So perhaps that's a, a just one more model that we could throw out there that apologist has presented. You know, I'm imagining that Kerry Mulestein probably bases that on the Arabic 
word KLB, yes. which, he, which means center. Yes, which he's made it, which he has made a, a, a big deal out of apologetically. That's precisely correct. Okay, so what we've got here, we've talked about the confusion in the book of Abraham. I mean, this is anything but a straightforward text that you can read and just understand what it's talking about. Because now you've got all these different ways that, jo- that, that Abraham, sorry, I almost said Joseph Smith, but Abraham is portrayed as receiving this revelation. And now we're just talking about half a chapter with the astronomy, half a chapter, right? And yet you've got all these different people who are intelligent people who read it, they're educated, they're trying to understand it. And you've got all these different and contradictory ways of viewing these 18 verses of astronomy. You've got people saying, hey, this shows it's geocentric. You've got other people like Harry Mulesley saying, no, it shows that it's colob-centric, right? Mm-hmm. It's not, the center isn't the earth, even though in the text, colob is only mentioned as being higher than the earth. There's nothing at all in the text that talks about colob being the center. He's going off into his Arabic in order to make that argument. But you've got those two. Then you've got John West saying it shows um, the way astronomy will be discovered in the future. And you've got, uh, once again, the geocentric, that's the way it was in the past. And finally, Terrell Gibbons coming in saying, no, this is the way astronomy was understood by some people in Joseph Smith's day. And he used his prophetic imagination to cobble the pieces together and put it in scripture. Yep. So that's very, very interesting. And, and it's, it's not easy to understand. But now I want to try and just give you my understanding of what it is that's being described here. Okay, and that's going to be different than everybody else's. <laughs> okay. Awesome. I can't, I can't wait because I haven't heard it yet. Well, I get the idea that what's going on with people is that it's very understandable. They come up with a theory, right? Something uh, in the text suggests to them an idea. And so then they have a theory, and then they're going to construct everything else around their theory in order to make it support the theory. I see that with all, all four of these different examples that we've talked about. But what I'm going to try and do, And what I've tried to do is just try and do a straightforward reading of the text and try and understand what is this text trying to say on its own terms without trying to make it fit some kind of theory. So here's what I think it says. First off, it's very clear that the earth is at the bottom of this order. And don't try and, you know, put this in space or anything, but the earth is at the bottom of the order. And then everything else is above it. And there's all these planets and all these stars, whatever you want to call them. I know there's some, just like between intelligence and spirit, that those are used interchangeably. Star and planet kind of seem to be used interchangeably in the text as well. But there's all these bodies, let's put it that way, between the earth and Kolob. And so we've got this uh, gradation all the way up from the two ends of the spectrum, with earth being at the bottom of the spectrum, Kolob being at the top of the spectrum. Of course, we'll find this reflected, at least hinted at, when it segues into talking about the divine beings, right? And that you've got God, just as Kolob is greater than uh, all the other planets, even we have God talking about he's more intelligent than all the spirits. And even as we have one planet above another planet in the first part of the chapter, we have one spirit more intelligent than another spirit in the second part of the chapter. But going on with my straightforward reading, and uh, I'm not going to read the text, I may refer to it, okay? But please get your Uh, book of Abraham out in front of you and turn to chapter three if you want. What's going on is first off, that's the the order of the planets between earth and Kolob. The second thing that's very important to the author is to talk about time and the duration of time. 
and the reckoning of time. And that word is used, the reckoning of time. And it appears that the author believes that time gets longer depending upon how slow or fast the rotation of a particular planet is on its axis. Okay? Yes. So we, we first off, we start talking about the Earth. We all understand the Earth. We all understand there's 24 hours in a day. And that's the time it takes the Earth to, did I say revolve? I, it's rotate once on its axis. And this also gets into a problem with the text because I think that uh, I know that sometimes I'll misspeak and I think it's very common for people to say uh, a revolution versus a rotation. Yeah, well, that, that's the text is actually going to use revolution. Exactly. exactly. And revolution in a technical sense means the time it takes for a, a planet to orbit around the sun or the moon to orbit around the earth, whatever it is, a body to go around another body. That's technically a revolution. And a rotation is uh, the movement of a planet or body on its own axis without yes. regard to how it's uh, affecting or going around any other body. But that's a technical sense. In another sense, in a more general sense, a revolution is also a rotation. It's commonly used that way, not scientifically, but commonly because it's revolving around its axis, right? Yep. Okay. So it means movement of something around something else. That's a revolution. So it can be used either way. All right. So the earth revolves once on its axis every 24 hours, but Kolob revolves once on its axis every what? Oh, goodness. What was it? It's thousand, a real even number. Is it a thousand years? Or it's a it thousand years. Mm -hmm. yeah. Exactly. So Kolob, which is near to the pl uh, place where God resides, revolves once on its axis every thousand years. And this is the idea that appears to be borrowed from Peter, where he talks about one day is unto the Lord is a thousand years. Now, Peter seems to be speaking euphemistically, but this gets very literalized in Abraham and the astronomy chapter. So one revolution of Kolob is every, I did it again, one rotation of Kolob is every 1,000 years. And the idea seems to be that if it takes you 1,000 years to rotate once on your axis, then any being on or near that planet, Kolob, will experience time in a much more protracted manner than a being on the Earth who has one day every 24 hours. So he talks about the different reckonings. And here's the reasoning he gets to, and this is what I find fascinating, because he's going to give an example between the Earth and Kolob. And the example he's going to give is the moon. All right? And he's going to use this as an example. And this is where he starts talking about, um, well, let's, let's look at verse 4, okay? Yeah. And the Lord said unto me, by the Urim and Thummim, that Kolob was after the manner of the Lord according to its times and seasons, he has very important to the author, in the revolutions thereof. There's the revolutions, right? That one revolution was a day unto the Lord after his manner of reckoning. So the Lord's manner of reckoning is not the same as our manner of reckoning. It being 1,000 years according to the time appointed unto that whereon thou standest, i.e. the earth. So it's 1,000 years here, but it's only a day to God. This is the reckoning of the Lord's time according to the reckoning of Kolob. All right. Now he's going to give this example, and it's going to be the moon. Now, by the way, he's, going to, he's not going to say the moon. He's going to say it's the lesser light. Let me, let me RFM, can I interject right Please. there and just say that this will become very important for understanding Joseph Smith's view on um, 
on human history, the Earth's history, right? Because the Earth, therefore, was created in six days, and in it will be six. It'll be six thousand years old, and ready then in Joseph Smith's time period for the millennial reign, right? Yes. So that's that's really significant that it's that he wants to put it at, as such that it's one day. So it's six days of six days of creation, which reflects Genesis chapter one. And on the seventh day, God rests. Well, the seventh time period would then be the millennial thousand year reign of Jesus Christ upon the earth, which means that Joseph Smith is, and his contemporaries are right there at the end of times, which of course the prophet believes that, um, that Joseph, that Jesus will come in his lifetime. Right, right. And so, by the way, that, that links into another change he makes in his, his creation account in Abraham 4 and 5, which is instead of saying, uh, talking about the different days of creation, mm-hmm. he has Abraham talking about the different times. Times, precisely, which will connect then because it's from the perspective of Kolob. Mm-hmm. Right. So it's not a day of creation, even though he, he could say that because it's, you know, it's a day on Kola, which is a thousand years. But he says different times. Every time it talks about um, uh, the evening and the morning was the first day mm-hmm. in Genesis, it talks about the evening and the morning was the first time. Yeah. Okay. So it, as an example, um, at the end of verse eight of chapter four, it says, um, uh, pass, it came to pass that uh, it was from morning until evening that they called day, and this was the second time that they called night and day. Yep. So it's all these time periods. It's not linked into a day, at least not as we understand it, not, our, not according to our reckoning, right? Yep. All right, so we go to the moon, right? And once again, the moon is not mentioned. It's referred to as the lesser light because in Genesis chapter 1 and 2, the lesser light and the greater light, the lesser light to rule the night and the greater light to rule the day. So we understand that the lesser light is the moon. It's the earth's moon. So now in verse five, and the Lord said unto me, the planet, which is the lesser light. Okay. So he's referring to the moon as a planet, the planet, which is the lesser light, lesser than that, which is to rule the day. Even the night is above or greater than that upon which thou standest in point of reckoning. All right. So he's going to take us up to the next planet above Earth. So we're going to start moving along the spectrum from Earth to Kolob. Okay? So we're only going to be talking about the the moon in detail here, but this is going to be the example of if there's one above another, then it shows that there's going to be one higher than that until you get to Kolob. And what he's throwing in is this twist that not only is it higher than the Earth until you get to Kolob, but every single planet that you arrive at along that spectrum is going to move a little bit more slowly than the earth and more slowly and more slowly. And then another one more slowly and to get to Kolob, which is the slowest of all, because time is the longest there. Okay. So still in verse five, uh, talking about the moon, the lesser light than that upon which thou standest in point of reckoning for it moveth in order. I'm quoting now from verse five for it moveth in order more slow. This is in order because it standeth above the earth upon which thou standest. Therefore, the reckoning of its time is not so many as to its number of days and of months and of years. So it's talking about the moon moving more slowly than the earth moves. Um, And there is this implication here, which I think is obvious from the text, that time is slower on the moon 
because if it if a planet moves more slowly, then time itself slows down. That's the implication I'm getting there, and those are the reckonings. Now, having said that, can I just tell you why it is that I think that Joseph Smith and other people in his day, I can't give you a quotation or a citation, uh, believe that the moon moved more slowly? Because you say, what does that mean? What do you mean the moon moves more slowly? Well, I think the problem is, is that we're coming at it from the point of view of our modern understanding of astronomy, which really doesn't link with that. But here's the deal. The moon moves more slowly. I think that what Joseph Smith's getting at here is the idea of what the scientists would call today apparent retrograde motion. Have you ever heard that expression before? I have. Okay. So why don't you tell us what apparent retrograde motion is as it relates to the moon, if you can. I can't. I've just, oh, I'm sorry. You're going out. You're good. You're taking You're. I, I'm good at talking about things in terms of uh, ancient astronomy. If we're start, if we're going to really get into, uh, you know, contemporary sorts of viewpoints, um, I'm, I, I'm going to be, uh, yeah, I, I'm not your guy. All right. Talk about how the Babylonians saw things, but well, I know this only because I've studied it because of the book of Abraham, <laughs> but, uh, apparent retrograde motion. All it means is this, is that the moon, first off, let's start with basics. Okay. All of this is from the point of view of the earth. So that's why it's called apparent. This has nothing to do with how things really move, but from the earth, certain things appear to move in certain ways. As far as the moon, the sun, the stars, the planets, right? So from the point of view of the earth, the apparent retrograde motion of the moon is this, is that the moon, as we know, travels like with the stars and like with the sun from east to west over the horizon. We understand that much because we observe that all the time. But the moon is different because if you were to go out tonight at midnight, assuming the moon is up at midnight, it will be shortly. We're going to have a full moon here on Halloween in about a week. But at midnight, if the moon is up, you go outside, you look up, you see the moon, it's midnight, you clock the time, you look at your watch, okay? And you see where it is against the stars in the background, all right? Because that's how we can peg where the moon is in relation to the stars yeah. from the point of view of the earth. If you go out the next night at midnight, same time, and you look up at the moon, what you'll find is that it has moved backward against the stars. Yeah. And so even though the moon in its orbit moves from east to west, it appears to actually go backward on that orbit. And that is what I think this is talking about, is that the moon moves in its order more slow. Because it moves more slowly than the stars. Yeah. The stars outpace the moon, because yes. the moon moves backward against the backdrop of the stars. So that's all I'm talking about, is the apparent retrograde motion of the moon, and why I think if that's what's being described here. You explain that so much better than I took astronomy as an undergraduate. I got, I, it was such a mistake RFM because, you know, um, when I was an undergraduate, you can either take math courses or language courses. And so being a humanities guy, I said, give me every language course I can possibly take. So I took Hebrew and even Ugaritic at BYU, an ancient quote unquote Canaanite language. But then when I took my uh, science class, I'm like, okay, I got to take a science class. I'll do astronomy because that connects with constellations, which connects with ancient mythology. Let's do that. And I sat in that first astronomy class and the astronomer professor said, okay, for the next class, you're going, here's the equation to mathematically um, figure out the distance between stars. You're going to have to memorize this equation. And I'm like, oh no, what have I gotten myself into? I just wanted constellations and mythology. So uh, you explained that so clearly and thank you for doing that. That's great. 
You are so welcome. Yeah, I had a friend who went and took an astronomy class at, in college and thought that's exactly what was going to happen and then found out it's not about constellations and all the interesting stuff. No, it's math. <laughs> okay, let me, uh, if I could interject right here, mm -hmm. uh, I think I've got something that, that might be worth adding because uh, with your really wonderful observation here on the moon, and that is as we read these verses, I think we have to ask ourselves, well, why does Joseph Smith, as author care about time on the moon? Why does he care about time on these other stars and planets? What, what, why does it matter if, there is, uh, if, if time is reckoned in those spheres? From a contemporary astronomical perspective, it wouldn't matter to us at all because we know that the moon is not inhabited. Therefore, what value does time have? But in the 19th century, it was very common for theologians and natural astronomers to assume that the moon, the sun, the stars were inhabited by human beings just like us. And that is why we're going to see um, patriarchal blessings like this one given to Joseph Smith, given to Lorenzo Snow by Joseph Smith Sr. If I could just share this brief little section here in his patriarchal blessing, uh, Lorenzo Snow receives these promises. Um, Thou hast a great work to perform. God has called thee to the ministry. Thou must preach the gospel unto the inhabitants of the earth. Thou shalt become a mighty man. Thou shalt have great faith, even like the brother of Jared. Thou shalt have power to translate thyself from one planet to another and power to go to the moon if thou so desire, power to preach to the spirits in prison, power to rend the veil and see Jesus Christ at the right hand of the Father, power like Enoch to translate thyself to heaven, end of quote. And this is just one illustration of many that we could turn to in early Mormonism, where the, where the sun and moon um, are depicted as having inhabitants that we could actually go visit and see, which ties into Abraham chapter three and the very reason why it would even matter that time is being recorded and understood on these other uh, planetary entities. That's fascinating. Absolutely fascinating. So that's basically what I'm talking about. And I think that a straightforward, as straightforward as I can do it, okay, reading of this astronomy section in Abraham is just talking about a an ordering of the planets from Earth up to Kolob, giving the moon as an example about the rotation slowing. Because it seems that in, in Joseph Smith's mind or Abraham's mind or whoever's writing this is mind, that as that this retrograde motion of the moon somehow equates to a slower rotation on its axis. Or maybe the revolutions and the rotations are being combined in some way. But it does seem that what it's talking about is we're going to talk about the moon. It moves in order more slow, which sure seems like it's talking about retrograde motion. And then you get all the way up to Kolob, which is moving the slowest of all. And there, time is so elongated and protracted that there's a thousand years to one day. Yeah. Okay, so that's my understanding about that. By the way, 
something else that's very interesting is when you get to the end, because it's talking about reckonings, right? In your time of reckoning, there's a time of reckoning on the earth. There's a time of reckoning on Kolob, and one is not the same as the other. Then when you get to chapter five, almost at the end of what we have in the book of Abraham, after Adam's been created um, the second time, <laughs> uh, where it talks about the tree of knowledge of good and evil in verse 13. And then it goes on in verse 13 to say, now I, Abraham, saw that it was after the Lord's time, which was after the time of Kolob. For as yet, the gods had not appointed unto Adam his reckoning. Yeah. Do you see that there in first, uh, chapter 5, verse 13? Yes, yes, that's wonderful. And so, of course, I don't think Joseph Smith expatiated on this, but I know that Brigham Young did. And I think that this is where he's getting his cues from when he talks about, first of all, I was talking here about the earth apparently having the same reckoning as Kolob, which means that the earth at this time is really rotating once on its axis every thousand years, right? Just the same as Kolob, the reckoning of time is the same. Yep. So what does that mean about the placement of the earth? It's near Kolob. Mm -hmm. It has to be because that's how the order of things goes. And what did, do you remember what Brigham Young taught about the earth and the fall of the earth? Oh, that it fell from the uh, throne of God in which that's, that's what created then the, the fall of Adam precisely. Mm -hmm. Right. So when Adam falls, the earth falls. And up to that point, Adam is, he can live forever, apparently. Right. Yeah. He's immortal. Because he's next to Kolob. And because the earth is moving in, in, in Kolob's time. Yes. That, that is, that's, a, that's a point I have not considered. That's wonderful. So a lot of times, you know, I know Brigham Young gets a bad rap. And for a lot of it, he deserves it, right? Sure. But when he's coming up with these things that sound absolutely cray-cray, <laughs> a lot of times he's actually doing some study and some thinking, a lot of pondering and connecting different things that Joseph Smith had set forth and that we still have in our scriptures today, but maybe aren't thinking of in the same way. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Okay. There's only one more thing I want to say about astronomy. Do you have anything else you want to say about astronomy here? Um, I do. But um, why don't we, why don't we, why don't we have you finish that section and then I'll, um, and then I'll piggyback off of that. Okay. So back in the early 1980s, I think it was uh, general conference time, Bruce R. McConkie's giving a talk. I think it was in general conference. I know it was Bruce R. McConkie and it was back during that time period. Now I've only been a member of the church since 1978. So I have only attended a certain number of general conferences as of this point, but already I know it's boring. It's as, it's as boring as watching uh, paint dry. It's actually as boring as watching dry paint dry. That's how boring general conferences. So anytime something out of the usual pops up, it's like, oh, whoa, something new was said. Yeah. And what Elder McConkie said at one point in general conference was that, let me see if I can get this right. I'm not looking at his quote. I'm looking at what he was quoting from, but I don't know that he gave the reference. That he said that... Um, Eternity has been going on in this system of things for 2,555,000,000 years. Mm. Now, when he said that, everybody's like, my gosh, what, what on earth? This is totally new. It's like total revelation. Where is he getting this from? This must be a fantastically advanced subject. 
But later on, I found out that he was actually quoting from a letter by William W. Phelps, and it related to what William W. Phelps at least said was contained on these Egyptian papyri. Do you know what I'm talking about there? Yep, I think so. Okay, good. Because this is kind of famous. I mean, once you get into it, it becomes well known. Uh, For most Mormons, they probably haven't heard of it. But this is a letter, which I think he wrote in 1845. And it was published in the Times and Seasons on January 1st, 1845. So this is after, obviously, Joseph Smith has uh, been killed. But in a letter, W.W. Phelps claims that eternity agreeable to the records found in the catacombs of Egypt, right? So those are the papyri. Eternity has been going on in this system. And the way he writes it is this, almost almost 2,555 millions of years. So if you take that 2,555 millions of years and and make it into billions, it's 2.555 billion years or 2,555,000,000 years. And to, excuse me, and he goes on to say, and to know that deists, geologists, and others are trying to prove that matter must have existed hundreds of thousands of years, it almost tempts the flesh to fly to God. Or muster faith like Enoch to be translated and see and know as we are seen and known. So here at this point, there's a change going on. uh, Because all of a sudden now, instead of the earth just being thousands of years old, Now we're talking about this system. He doesn't actually describe or detail what the system means, unfortunately. But he says in this system, it's been going on for 2,555,000,000 of years. So now he's poo-pooing the geologists who think the earth is only thousands of years old. Of course, that's at his time, right? Not today when they would understand that it's about 4.5 billion years old. Okay. So having said that, we have an insight into what was contained in the papyrus. Uh, one would presume that William W. Phelps got this from Joseph Smith, who was the one who had the ability to translate the papyrus, but it doesn't find its way into the book of Abraham. It's this uh, fact that's sort of floating out there that didn't get included. Now, having said that, there is a theory which I stumbled upon as to why it was that W.W. Phelps claims that the papyrus said that eternity has been going on in this system for almost Two billion five hundred and fifty-five millions of years. Have you ever heard of this? No, I have not. Okay, here we go. It's math, mm, and I'm not good I'm at math. Good. I'm not good at math. I went into a lot because I stink at math. <laughs> but and I had to do this a number of times. I actually found an article where somebody did it for me because I'd forgotten how to do it myself. But here's the deal. Okay, here's the deal. The Earth has existed or will exist. For 7,000 years. Okay, this does get back to the 7,000 years, by the way. Okay, 7,000 years of the Earth's temporal existence, correct? Mm-hmm. There's 365 days in a year. That much makes sense. Yeah. But according to the Lord's time, what, it's, what is each of those days equivalent to? A thousand years. Yes. So if you take 7,000 years of the Earth's temporal existence, and you multiply it by 365, which is the number of days in a year, and then you multiply it by 1,000, because there's a thousand days or a thousand years to every day from the Lord's perspective. You know what you come up with? 
<laughs> the exact same yeah. thing that William W. Phelps came up with, 2555000000 There you go. So this appears to be where this figure came from. It was a simple math um, calculation. And so it does appear that if we're going to take that even one step further, and I don't know if I want to, but I'll just do it in a speculative, tentative kind of way, that apparently this is what God's time mm. would look like when he's looking at the earth in its 7,000 years from God's point of view, because we're looking at it from God's point of reckoning, 1,000 years to every day. It's actually 2,555,000 years that the earth has been in existence. Wow. That's fascinating. Yeah, that is really, really interesting. Well, thank you. I thought it was really cool because it's yeah. one thing just to hear the number. It's another thing to, to realize probably because he doesn't say how he gets it. Mm -hmm. But when you do that math and it comes up to the exact same number, it's a pretty good clue. Yeah, absolutely. Okay. So now we're, I think we're done pretty much with the astronomy and let's segue into um, how the astronomy relates to the divine beings because now Joseph Smith is going to introduce, at least in scripture, this idea of a grand council in heaven. Okay. Before, we get, before we get there, yep. Um, is it okay if I piggyback on that then? And and because I think there, there's something, and it may it may take a, a few minutes to 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 get into, but I I think it's really significant. Please go ahead. Okay, let's return then RFM to the idea apologetically that Peterson and others have put forward that this presents a geocentric model. Going back then and remembering what John Gee said in his 2017 publication on the Book of Abraham, where he presents a summary of it. And, you know, a lot of it is based upon this phrase that appears over and over again in chapter three, where God says, the earth upon which thou standest. And he uses that as a center point of reference. From that, they built their argument for the geocentric model of the universe that is supposedly presented in this chapter. From my perspective, RFM, they are taking this in, and uh, it, it, it just directions that the text does not warrant. Uh, by referencing the earth, we're really seeing, in my mind, the same thing that appears with Joseph Smith's revision of Genesis in the book of Moses. If you'll recall um, Moses chapter 1, um, uh, God speaks to him. Let me, let me pull that up, and he says um, this in verse... Uh, 35, but only this is God speaking to Moses, just as he speaks to Abraham in chapter three, verse 35, but only an account of this earth and the inhabitants thereof give I unto you for behold, there are many worlds that have passed away by the word of my power. And there are many that now stand and innumerable are they unto man, but all things are numbered unto me for they are mine and I know them. So, I believe, really, we're just seeing the same thing. Again, chapter 3 is going to tell us that time is reckoned on these other planets, including the sun and the moon, because Joseph Smith and others believe that they are inhabited, literally, by human beings. And um, this also appears in his revision of Genesis, but the focus is on this earth instead of those other inhabitants. And we're also reminded, of course, of DNC section 76, and the introduction to that where um, Joseph Smith and Sidney Rigdon have the vision of the three degrees of glory compared to the sun, 
uh, the moon and and the uh, the stars. And we learned that the inhabitants are saved by Jesus Christ, are all sons, begotten sons of daughters unto God through Jesus Christ. That's even made more explicit by the poetic revision that Joseph Smith does to section 76 later on, where he says literally that they are saved by this very same Savior as ours. So returning then to Abraham 3, what they're identifying literally is just this 19th century cosmological viewpoint that is articulated all throughout Joseph Smith's um, scriptural texts, whether it's Doctrine and Covenants, the Book of Moses, or here in the Book of Abraham, that the focus is going to be only on the inhabitants of this earth, and so it will be used as a reference point. Anything else that they develop beyond that is taking the text um, further than it warrants, in my opinion. But let's grant RFM for just a moment that let's just say that they were right, that this does in fact present a heal, uh, sorry, a um, a geocentric model of, of the cosmos in Abraham chapter 3. This is something that they have never considered, but is really problematic for what they're trying to suggest. And that is Genesis chapter 1, which is revised as the very next chapter in the book of Abraham, as Abraham chapter 4, presents an entirely different cosmological account one that is reflective of what we see um, generally in the ancient Near East. So if I, let me do this kind of briefly, but I, I think it's, 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 it's pretty fascinating. Instead of using Abraham chapter four, I'll open up the King James version of Genesis chapter one, which is revised into that particular chapter. Okay. So uh, Genesis chapter one, verse one begins in the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth. The first thing to note there is that the two opposite words, heaven and earth, are technically known as merismus, which are two opposite words that mean a totality of something. So, for example, when Adam and Eve will later eat the fruit of knowledge of good and bad, that is interpreted as a knowledge of all things, or alpha and omega the first letter of the Greek alphabet and the last letter of the Greek alphabet, meaning A to Z, all things encompassed. So it, we start off that God creates the entirety of the cosmos, right, in the very first line. This is all um, a reference to how the world is going to be. This is, all, this is all a prologue, if you will, or an introduction. We read, the earth was without form and void, and darkness was upon the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God moved upon the face of the waters. Well, verse 2 what, that, what, that I just read is pre-creation, because the very first creative act is in verse 3, Genesis 1, where God said, let there be light, and there was light. Um. So verse two is actually really reflective of Joseph Smith's theology. Now he didn't, he was basing his theology on his interpretation just of the verb bara in Hebrew. But verse two tells us that prior to the first creative act, which is Genesis one, verse three, let there be light. There is already an earth, but it's, it is without form and it is void. And then we read that there was darkness upon the face of the deep. By the way, that word deep is a translation of the Hebrew word tehom, which is an exact cognate of the Akkadian word tiamat, 
the uh, sea monster that is battled by Marduk, the chief god of Babylon, in the creation that is uh, presented in Enuma Elish that has influenced Genesis chapter 1, as we discussed in the previous podcast. But here, Tiamat, and I won't explain why, it, it, it's, it's, it's technically grammar, Akkadian still has what is what are called case endings, and that is what that ought is in Tiamat. If you remove that, you basically have tahom in Hebrew, which is deep. So God does not have to fight Tiamat here. In fact, uh, it's just something that is um, is mentioned here in, as, as part of pre-creation. And that's important because the author of Genesis 1 does not want to present creation um, as is typically done in the ancient Near East through theomachy, a technical term that means divine combat, where the gods like Marduk go to battle against a sea monster like Tiamat. Instead, later on in the, the chapter, the sea monsters will be mentioned, but God just creates and forms them. He doesn't battle them. Anyway, moving on then, to understand this, uh, this account of cosmology, it is divided into six days, right? Well, each day is a mathematical equation in and of itself, but it does, the math is pretty easy. We can all do it. So, for example, day one, God will create the light right? And then on day four, God will create the, the entities that pertain to the light and the darkness. He'll create the sun, the moon, and the stars. On day two, then, which is in Genesis chapter one, verse six, again, all of this is revised and in in presented in the very next chapter of the book of Abraham. We read, God said, let there be a firmament in the midst of the waters and let it divide the waters from the waters. And this is the second day. Well, what is that firmament? Um, really what it is, is I guess the best way to describe it is something kind of like a clear see-through plastic dome that is above the earth, which is flat. And that dome is keeping the waters above us from falling down upon the flat earth. Um, the cosmology that is presented here in Genesis chapter 1 is that the earth is flat, and underneath it there are waters. That's, it makes sense, because if you dig a hole, um, water is going to come up from the hole. And so um, with a flat earth model, which is what they believed, you could walk to the edge of the earth as well, and eventually you're going to encounter the ocean or this Mediterranean Sea or whatever the case might be. And so this idea of waters above and waters below is very meaningful. And I used to do this as a kid all of the time growing up in San Diego, man. There would not be a, a, a sometimes a cloud in the sky on these beautiful warm days. And I'd look up and being obsessed with the ocean like I was, I would imagine, I think, man, it looks like water up there. And I would wonder, you know, if, if there was no gravity, it was turned upside down, I would just float or fall down into all of that water above. It just, I remember thinking of that. And that's exactly what ancient people thought prior to the invention of the telescope, because it's blue, but not just that, but what comes down from water, or sorry, what comes down from the sky, <laughs> rain. And that is the ancient cosmological viewpoint that is presented here in Genesis chapter 1 and in Genesis chapter, or sorry, in Abraham chapter 4. So um, that is why, by the way, that when um, in Malachi, when God promises to um, open up the floodgates or the window of heaven and 
pour down a blessing upon people if they pay their tithing, literally what they imagine is God is opening up in this firmament a, a window that will allow the water to come down upon the flat earth and provide rain when it does. So moving on then with the equation in Genesis chapter one and in Abraham chapter four, uh, day three will actually link with day six because on day three, he creates the flat, he organizes the flat earth. David? And then on day six, he's going to create the inhabitants of the flat earth, namely um, the animals and humanity. David? What? Sorry, go ahead. No, no, I'm sorry. Um, don't mean to interrupt, but when you got down to day two and you talked about creating the firmament in the heavens, I'm not sure. Did you go and go to day five after that? I know you went off on this tangent, which was fascinating about the firmament, but the connection between day one and day uh, four you talked about and day Two, I don't think you hooked up with day five yet. I thank you. I have not, and um, I have not, and and there's a reason for it. I wanted to establish the equation. It's very easy for modern readers to see that day one is linked with day four, right? Yes. Because light and darkness, then day on day one, then day four, you have moon, sun, and stars. It's very easy to see that day three links up with day six because you have the land and then you have the animals and humans that pertain to that sphere. Day two is the division of the waters above versus the waters below through the firmament. And that's a little bit more difficult, right? Because for a modern reader, because what does he create on day five? He creates the fish and the things of the sea, including the sea monsters. Well, that makes sense because they're in the waters below. But what also does he create? The birds. Precisely. He creates the birds. And a modern reader says, well, why the hell does birds leave that? Well, you get why birds are there on day five because they are, they are in essence, swimming in the waters above. And, and so this is a different, an entirely different create a uh, cosmological account and view of the universe than what would be a geocentric model presented in Abraham chapter three, according to the apologetic argument, because in, if the earth is at the center and all things are revolving around it, you do not have a flat earth. You have a round earth at which everything is at the center. It's the only way for that to make sense. And it does not link up with modern cosmological, with, with ancient cosmological accounts, including the very one that appears in the very next chapter of the book of Abraham. In fact, I did this I did this this morning because I was curious as to what as to what it would do. You're going to enjoy this. Watch this. I went ahead and I just said I wonder what Wikipedia is going to to going to do on this. And so right before we um started our podcast, I just googled the Wikipedia article on biblical cosmology. Let me say just um Wikipedia has gotten much better over the years. Um, it's still not a resource that I encourage my, my students to cite in their academic papers. But when teaching college classes and teaching students about research, I will tell them, start, go ahead and start with Wikipedia. It's a nice way to begin and then follow up their links and their resources and, and use it as a jumping off point is how I would see Wikipedia. But let's go ahead, and I googled RFM, Biblical Cosmology, 
And I opened up the Wikipedia site, and they're actually right on on all of this. And check this out. I'm going to go ahead and read the oh, just the first two paragraphs of the entry. Biblical cosmology is the biblical writer's conception of the cosmos as an organized, structured entity, including its origin, order, meaning, and destiny. The Bible was formed over many centuries, and I would interject and say the Hebrew Bible over a thousand years, involving many authors and reflecting shifting patterns of religious belief. Consequently, its cosmology is not always consistent, and that's absolutely true. I mentioned Genesis 1 lacks the divine combat or theomachy, but you can see that in other biblical texts, including Psalm uh, 74, where God is going to create the universe through fighting um, Leviathan and the deep and, and sea monsters. So it, it's not consistent. We shouldn't expect it to be. Returning to Wikipedia. Nor do the biblical texts necessarily represent the beliefs of all Jews or Christians at the time they were put into writing. The majority of those making up Hebrew Bible Oral Testament, in particular, represent the beliefs of only a small segment of the ancient Israelite community, the members of late Judean religious tradition centered in Jerusalem and devoted to the exclusive worship of Yahweh. And now, um, here's where we get. Here's where this is important. Second paragraph on biblical cosmology. The ancient Israelites envisioned a universe made up of a flat disc-shaped earth floating on water, heaven above, underworld below, which is just what I described. And let me interject RFM and say if our listeners want to see another cool version of this in the Hebrew Bible, go to the book of Jonah. When Jonah is swallowed by the great fish, um, he tells us that he went down to hell in the King James, which is a translation of the Hebrew word Sheol. And Sheol does not mean hell, the place where Satan resides and people shovel coal and demons with pitchfork uh, torture people. That's a, that's a contemporary perspective. Sheol in the Hebrew Bible actually just means the underworld. It's equivalent to Hades in Greek thought or mythology. It's the world of the dead. So Jonah says, I went down to the underworld, and he then says, and I went down to the bottoms of the mountains, which are underneath the sea, because that's where the, that's where the um, fish is going to take him after he swallows him, and he'll be there for three days and three nights before the fish returns him to the land and vomits him up there. So that's a fun one to look at. I'll return now to Wikipedia really quick. So it says... Um, uh, let's see. Um, humans inhabited earth during life and the underworld after death. There was no way that mortals could enter heaven and the underworld was morally neutral. That's true. We don't have an, a concept of heaven until later in Judaism, and that will actually be influenced um, specifically through Zoroastrianism, uh, Persian religion. Continuing, only in Hellenistic times, after 330 BCE, did Jews begin to adopt the Greek idea that it would be a place of punishment for misdeeds and that the righteous would enjoy an afterlife in heaven. In this period, too, the older three-level cosmology in large measure gave way to the Greek concept of a spherical earth suspended in space at the center of a number of concentric heavens. In other words, a geocentric model. In fact, that's what this Wikipedia article is going to talk about. It's going to talk about um, the fact that the geocentric model is going to come in later on. 
I'm going to jump down to the section on heavens, earth, and the underworld. The Hebrew Bible depicted a three-part world with the heavens, Shemaim, above, earth, Eretz, in the middle, and the underworld, world, Sheol, below. And here's our point that's so important. After the 4th century BCE, this was gradually replaced by a Greek scientific cosmology of a spherical earth surrounded by multiple... Oh, shoot, I already read that. I can't find where I'm looking. Ah, okay. It's the footnote. That's where it was. Okay. It was gradually replaced by a geocentric, by this other model. Then it takes you, you got to follow it down to footnote six. This is where I was. Okay. During the Hellenistic period of a geocentric model of the universe largely replaced the older three-tiered universe model for Greek thinkers such as Aristotle proposed that the earth was a sphere suspended freely in space. Do you see where I'm going with this? I see one way to go with it, but it may not be your way. Please tell me. Okay. Where I'm going with this is that the cosmology that is presented in Genesis chapter one is the ancient one that we find commonly articulated throughout the Near East the world of Abraham, if you will, where we have a flat earth and that the sun, the moon, the stars are um, kind of, it's in suspended animation above the earth uh, on the firmament. And the idea of a geocentric model where the earth is the center, where things revolve around the earth, which the apologists want to present as the model being presented in Abraham chapter three, there are major problems with that. Number one, you have a different cosmological account being presented in Abraham chapter four, which is derivative of Genesis chapter one. That's a problem for their argument and that they've never considered. Um, but number two, it's a Hellenistic model. And, and so why in the world would God, through the Urim and Thummim, reveal to Abraham um, a later model that the apologists argue is not is not reflective of contemporary astronomy, but it's based upon what ancients would understand when that model derives from the Hellenistic time period and does not appear in the Hebrew Bible. That makes no sense. From my perspective, if God is going to reveal something through the Urim and Thummim, he would do it in one of two ways. Either he would use the perspective that Abraham already held which is going to be much more reflective of the cosmology that appears in Genesis chapter one or the book of Abraham chapter four, and then use that to teach spiritual truths, which is kind of the way that Kerry Milstein would go, or he's going to go um, with the model that it is actually a true reflection of the universe that Abraham was going to receive that reflects what we know to be true through contemporary scientific analysis. The idea, why in the world would he ever then through Urim and Thummim and by placing his hands upon Abraham's eyes reveal to him an ancient model that derives many centuries after Abraham's lifetime, but is actually not a reflection of historical reality. So what I'm trying to say here, and I hope I've articulated it well, is that there are, from my perspective, two very significant problems with that, the, the main apologetic reading of Abraham chapter three. Number one you have a different cosmology presented in Abraham chapter four that reflects Genesis one. And number two, it's a later 
Hellenistic model that Abraham wouldn't have known and that I can see no reason that God would have revealed since it's not an actual reflection of reality. Have I, I know that was lengthy, but have I done that okay? Have I done it justice? No, I think that's great. If you look at Abraham chapter three and the astronomy presented there, at least on its own terms, it is consistent with itself. And if you look at Abraham chapter four, you have a completely different cosmology reflected, which is yep. consistent within itself. But the two different sets of cosmologies in three and four completely contradict each other. And not only that, but the one reflected in three would not have come from Abraham's day, but from, oh, I don't know, 1500 years later. Yeah through the Hellenistic time period with the Greek thinkers that will then influence through Hellenization and the dispersion of Hellenized idea, ideas that will influence Judaism. So now you got it. You got it. I think, I think we did it. Okay. I think we did it justice. Now let me, let me defend the apologists for just a minute. Um, although I don't think that they've recognized the problem that I identified in the different cosmological accounts presented between Abraham three and Abraham four. If they're correct, that it is a he that is, is sorry, a geocentric model that is being presented there. Um, they are sophisticated thinkers and these are intelligent men. And so what the argument that they will present is, well, we recognize that the, the pyre that Joseph had do not date to Abraham's time period. And so the assumption is, is that you have a Jewish author um, in Egypt using Egyptian symbols and writing uh, to, um, to tell the story of Abraham and using Abraham lore and things like that, that perhaps dates from their perspective back to Abraham uh, to create a book of Abraham from the Hellenistic time period that, uh, Joseph Smith then translates. So they would argue that, oh, well, uh, yeah, it's a geocentric model. Abraham wouldn't have thought of that, but it reflects then the author from antiquity. And RFM, to me, that is just such a, a terrible argument. I understand it's, it's, a, it's sophisticated thinking, but it, it's just, I, I, religiously what they're doing in that is that they are simply defending the idea that Joseph Smith had the ability from God to translate an ancient record, even if it wasn't literally written on papyri by the hand of Abraham. It was still an ancient account. Now, why would they want to do that? The reason they want to do that is because that then bolsters Joseph Smith's prophetic authority uh, to organize a church and to have a church that is the true church of Jesus Christ in these days. So even if they have to go down that route and say, Oh, it's a you know Hellenized document. Therefore, it presents a Hellenized viewpoint here in terms of a geocentric model. All of this is jumping around so that they can just come up with a way to make the book ancient. Um, but in reality, what they're what by doing that, they're not taking the text itself seriously and looking at what the text itself is presenting in terms of its cosmology in the way that you did a few minutes before that. So, from my perspective, that's just not a very strong apologetic argument, but it's the way that they would take it. Well, I think that's very fair of you to uh, look at it from the apologist's point of view as best you can. And by the way, I think it's fascinating what you're talking about, these two different conflicting ideas of cosmology reflected in the same book of Abraham that had never, ever occurred to me before. But inspired by you, 
I want to try and look at something here that I talked about before and try and give the best spin on it I can for the book of Abraham, because I talked about the last verse in Abraham chapter one, right? About the records that had come into Abraham's hands and that they have a knowledge of the beginning of the creation and also the planets and of the stars as they were made known unto the fathers. And I've kept it unto this day. And I shall endeavor to write some of these things upon this record for the benefit of my posterity that shall come after me. Well, maybe, maybe specifically what Abraham's talking about there is not chapter three, which he has to receive directly from God by way of uh, divine revelation. But maybe there he's talking about chapters four and five. And there he's talking about those are the records that he has, which end up being the same records that he would have gotten that would include the record of the five books of Moses, right? Including the creation account. And so maybe that's specifically what that's talking about there. And so maybe uh, Abraham chapter 131 doesn't connect with Abraham chapter three, but past Abraham three to Abraham chapter four, verse one, where he begins talking about Genesis chapter um, one and his reworking of the creation account there. Maybe those are the records that Abraham's talking about there. It, it could be, but then it, it uh, that presents all sorts of problems with the uh, book of Moses, right? Where Moses is, gets Genesis chapter 1 and 2 uh, through revelation from God as he teaches that to him. And he writes that down. And Moses is after the time period of Abraham. Oh, that's right. Shoot. So that, yeah. That, I mean, it just, it, it just doesn't work. You're right. And, That's and, why Abraham had to receive it by revelation. But then all of a sudden he's reworking the, the first two book, the first two chapters of Genesis, which yep. is the first book of Moses, which hasn't even been received by Moses for another 400 years. Well, yeah. Well, if you are dating Abraham for, you know, to, uh, you know, to 2000, yeah. From 2000 years and you're, you know, Moses, you're saying what, you know, you know, 1200 1300 something like that yeah it, it just it just there's no way to add all of this up and and that's because ultimately the cosmology that is presented in abraham chapter three is not contrary to what the apologists are telling you it's not a geocentric model um and it, it's not a it's not a, a contemporary model as well it is a reflection of 19th century perspectives about the universe. And um, you'll see that it's very important. We won't have time here. In fact, we really don't even need to. But um, because Dan Vogel has done such justice to it through a uh, YouTube presentation, and I would recommend that to our listeners. Um, what Vogel does in his YouTube presentation on this is that he will go through and he will use that Egyptian book of grammar to show how Joseph Smith is inspired to create this section in the book of Abraham by that earlier document and how it definitely reflects the viewpoints of natural theologians during Joseph Smith's time period. It is, it's, it's a 19th century cosmological account that appears here, not a contemporary one and not an ancient one. Okay. Well, like I say, I'm doing my best to get it right from the apologetic perspective, but I keep running into obstacles. Yep. I will say this though. Uh, there's another issue, I think, that makes a contradiction potentially, and I'll ask you that question here in a second, between Abraham 3 cosmology and Abraham 4 cosmology, and that has to do with the stars, okay? So 
Abraham 3, 7, and 8. Once again, this talks about the thing I was mentioning before. Uh, it actually says it in the text. Now, the set time of the lesser light, that's the moon, is a longer time as to its reckoning than the reckoning of the time of the earth upon which thou standest. And then verse 8 says, and where these two facts exist, there shall be another fact above them. That is, there shall be another planet whose reckoning of time shall be longer still. So you keep going above one planet, above another planet, above another planet until you get to Kolob. Now, going back to Abraham chapter 4, when we have the firmament. And the way I sort of look at it in my head is like a snow globe, right? Where you've got sort of a circular flat bottom and you've got a glass uh, covering in a dome shape all the way around it. And of course, in a snow globe, you've got it filled with water. Well, apparently that's the way it was at one point, but then God divided the waters and he took half of the waters or about half, I don't know exactly how much, and put it under the earth or under the bottom of the snow globe. And he took the other half of the water and put it above the snow globe. So it's actually the firmament that is keeping the water above the earth from drowning everybody on the earth, which of course we find reflected in the flood story, right? Because we always talk about, well, how could there be enough rain to flood the earth and cover the highest mountain? Well, that wouldn't make any sense. But of course it wouldn't because we're looking at it through our contemporary perspective. But if you look at it from the perspective of what they believe, you've got a ton of water below and a ton of water above. And what is it it says that the, the foundation of the earth were uh, broken up? What does it say about that? Firm yes. broken up and all the... You, how does it go? Yes. Um, yes, it does. Let... let, let why don't you keep going and I'll find the verse and read it. Okay, thanks. So you've got the water above, you've got the water below, but you've got this firmament that's separating you. And the firmament is important for other reasons other than just the preservation of life on earth and keeping all those uh, tremendous amounts of water from flooding the earth. The firmament is also this plasticine or crystallized sphere in which the lights of the heavens are embedded. I know you're looking. Is it six? Uh, Genesis it's six? seven. Okay. So we read in the six hundredth year of, and this is seven verse 11. So seven eleven, easy enough to remember. <laughs> in the sixth hundredth year of Noah's life, in the second month, the 17th day of the month, the same day were all the fountains of the great deep broken up and the windows of heaven were opened and the rain was upon the earth for 40 days and 40 nights. So that's, Exactly right. The fountains of the deep or the water below the fat, the, the flat earth are broken up. And what he's doing here is taking the earth back to pre-creation. Remember in Genesis chapter one, before God organizes the earth and, and, and divides the water from but he's just taking it back to pre-creation so that he can begin creation again with Noah and his family by breaking up the fountains of the great deep and opening the window of heaven in the firmament. Right. And so that's where all the water comes from, because from their point of view, it made absolute sense. From our point of view, it makes no sense because we don't believe in a firmament. We'll talk about the firmament because we get it from the Bible, but we sort of come to transmogrify. The definition to a firmament is just the the heavens, right? It's the open heavens because there's nothing between us and space. Mm -hmm. We can send rockets to the moon. There's nothing that it runs into like a firmament and goes boink. And then falls back to earth. So, but the firmament was this very crystalline substance and the lights of the sky, the stars, the moon, the sun, the planets were all conceived of as lights 
that were embedded in the firmament, correct? Yep. So having said that much, that's Abraham 4 reworking the Genesis 1 account. That's the view. You've got all these lights in the firmament because that's where they come from. That's what holds them up. Yep. But what do we do with that in comparison to Abraham chapter 3, where it's talking about one planet above another? <laughs> it, uh, it's inconsistent. You can't, it's, you can't, it's, it's, it's not reconcilable. Right. Two so models. Yep. Fascinating insight. I hope you're right about this too. Yeah. And it, it, it needs to be done. I, like I mentioned in a previous podcast, I, I just love this stuff so much. I, I, um, my interest has again been peaked and I want to, um, do an academic book on it at some point because boy, we've really got a lot to say on this. I mean, these, these podcasts have only just scratched the surface. Yeah, I'm really excited about them. A couple of other things is that Moses, you mentioned Moses chapter one. Mm-hmm. Well, first off, Moses chapter one is translated in, I think, the beginning of December, 1830. Mm-hmm. So it's the very beginning of the Joseph Smith translation of the Bible. We don't yeah. get to Abraham three until 1842, which is approximately 12 years later, maybe just almost 11 since it's at the beginning of 1842. But regardless, it's over a decade later. And whereas... In Moses chapter one, God is only ready at that point to reveal to Moses the existence of these other planets. But what he's going to show him relates only to the planet on which he dwells. By the time we get a decade later in Abraham chapter three, now God is ready to start revealing more to Abraham. He's going to reveal to him all this information about all these other planets that are different than the earth up to and including Kolob. And he'll give a bunch of other names of planets and ruling and governing stars in the explanations to facsimile too, as well. So it appears that God is willing to give more information to Abraham about the cosmos than he is to Moses and chronologically speaking in Joseph Smith's life, God's willing to reveal more in 1830 about the cosmos than he is in 1842 when he's going to give a lot more. Mm, That's wonderful. Very true. One other thing about Moses. Mm -hmm. We've mentioned that Josephus says that Abraham brought the knowledge of astronomy from Babylon to Egypt. Abraham keeps the main story, but provides that Abraham doesn't get that knowledge of astronomy from the Babylonians. He gets it from direct revelation from God, right? This is similar to what happens in Moses chapter one, because Moses chapter one serves a very distinct function as the prologue to Genesis, because there has been for ages a controversy about Moses chapter one and the creation account and the accounts of the patriarchs and all this stuff that happened thousands of years before Moses even lived. So how is Moses supposed to know about how the earth was created when he obviously wasn't around to see it? And is he just writing down what was written or is he passing along folklore and traditions of his people? Or was he, as we kind of know now through your studies, uh, are things being borrowed from the Babylonian culture or other cultures surrounding them that get adopted, incorporated into the Hebrew view of creation. So that's always been this controversy, but Moses chapter one answers that controversy in the following way. And you know where I'm going with this. The whole point of Moses chapter one is to say that 
the knowledge of the creation that's recorded in Genesis chapter 1 and 2 and so on came to Moses not by tradition, not by writings, not by borrowing from other cultures. It came to him as a direct revelation from God. So in the same way that uh, Abraham 3 says that Abraham didn't get his knowledge from the Babylonians about astronomy, he got it from revelation from God. Moses chapter 1 is doing a similar thing and saying that Moses didn't get his knowledge of the creation of the earth from any other source, but he got it also through direct revelation from God. Yeah, that's fascinating. It's very true. Well, anyway, um, I don't want to get too far off in the weeds on that, and maybe that's not as interesting as I had thought it was. Here's something no, that's I, interesting. I think it's, I think it's perfect. Oh, and I, would, I would add. I would add. I think we should add to this. Um, you know, why Abraham then after Moses? We already talked about the Josephus influence, and we we talked about the well. Of course, Michael Chandler is bringing these mummies and is actually connecting them with Joseph of Egypt and and Moses, and from the time period. So there's already an interest out there in, generally speaking, on the Western frontier and what Michael Chandler has. And so Joseph Smith is going to pool money together to purchase this material and, of course, link it with Abraham and then with biblical Joseph, um, because those connections were already being made, in essence. But um, where is this viewpoint that Joseph Smith has about Abraham, not only as as an astronomer, but in the teacher of the Egyptians and where does, where's the origin on all this? Sure. Yeah. It's in Josephus, but I think we can actually, as a, as a historian, I believe we, we have an answer to that. And it actually is Joshua, the book of Joshua in the Hebrew Bible, chapter 24, uh, verses two through three. And in that we read this text, Joshua said unto all the people, Thus saith the Lord God of Israel, your fathers dwelt on the other side of the flood or the other side of the river in old time, even Terah, the father of Abraham and the father of Nahor. They served other gods. And I took your father Abraham from the other side of the flood and led him throughout all the land of Canaan and multiplied his seed and gave him Isaac. Now, a straightforward reading of this passage simply says that all of the patriarchal fathers, Abraham, Nahor, Terah, worshipped other gods, but for some reason, God took Abraham from the other side of the flood, from the, um, from the Euphrates River, and brought him to the land of Canaan. Well, ancient authors speculated and tried to figure out, well, why why did he choose him? And, in a, and a tradition quickly emerged in Judaism and early Christianity that, that Abraham was excluded from that group. When it says that um, the, they served other gods, it's talking not about Abraham, but of Nahor and, um, and Terah, and not Abraham himself. And so lots of traditions evolved that Terah, Abraham's father, was an idolater and one who was connected with worshiping the sun, the moon, and the stars. But Abraham was not. And that's why he was chosen by God to receive the promises that he did. If we look then, and I'm not saying that Joseph Smith was directly inspired by these verses. He may have been. He knew his Bible very well. But the sources like Josephus that inspired these traditions were absolutely inspired 
by this section from Joshua 24, 2 through 3, which is why then in Abraham chapter 1, you're going to have reference to, oh, let's see, like at verse 5, my fathers having turned from their righteousness and from the holy commandments, which the Lord their God had given unto them, unto the worshiping of the gods of the heathen, utterly refused to hearken to my voice. Um, That's verse 5. Then Abraham chapter 1, verse 30. According to a famine, accordingly, a famine prevailed through all the land of Chaldea, and my father was sorely tempted because of the famine, and he repented of the evil which he had determined against me to take away my life. So Joseph Smith is presenting Abraham in a very specific way, and that way reflects the way that Abraham was understood in Joseph Smith's world by learned Bible commentaries that were ultimately influenced by ancient traditions that were reading this verse from Joshua the way that they did. Let me also add Isaiah 51 verse 2 to this, where we read about Abraham, him alone did I call. And that's where he says this. So if God called Abraham alone, is this not another way of saying that Abraham was quite unique among his family members? He and his father, Terah. Um, were very are, are very different and set up this way in later tradition, and that is ultimately what is inspiring Joseph Smith to present Abraham as someone who had further light and knowledge than his father did, and who rejected the gods of the heathen, including worshiping the gods of the heathen, who were often represented as idols and as sun, moon, star, and and, and through astronomy. So it all connects together. Really interesting. By the way, while you were talking, I found that um, I'm going way back now to what we were talking about before when I was talking about the different methods that Abraham 3 describes. Abraham is receiving this information. And I had mentioned that in um, 3 verse 11, it says uh, that he talked, Abraham talked with God face to face, and that carries on. And then I couldn't find it. Where it carries on is in verse 21 where it says, God speaking, I dwell in the midst of them all. That's all the intelligences that he dwells in the midst of, right? Then he says, I now therefore have come down unto thee to declare unto thee the works which my hands have made. So that's where it's continued down this this personal visitation that God actually comes down to Abraham to talk with him face to face to give him this information at the same time that apparently Abraham's receiving it through the Urim and Thummim and at the same time that God puts his hand over Abraham's eyes in order to give him a vision. Okay, so that was that. Here's this other thing, okay? This is fascinating to me because here is Joseph Smith. It's 1835. Michael Chandler rolls into town with some mummies, some Egyptian mummies, and they've got scrolls of papyrus that were buried with them, and he's going to sell them, right? Well, Joseph Smith knows from the Bible that there are three, and I think there's only three. You will correct me if I'm wrong because I know you'll know. There are three main Bible figures, patriarchs, who are associated with Egypt. One is Abraham, the second one is Joseph, and the third one is Moses. Yep. Do I have that about right? Yep. yep. So it's 1835, Joseph Smith has already done his uh, Book of Moses translation at the beginning of the Joseph Smith translation. There's only two patriarchs left, there's a couple of scrolls there, and who do they belong to? Mm, Abraham and Joseph. Yeah, the other two patriarchs. Yeah. That are associated in the Bible with Egypt. So, of course, that's, it's kind of natural that that's the way it's going to be. And from Joseph Smith's perspective, 
Here he's got this information. He knows about Josephus. He knows about the tradition that Abraham comes out of Babylon. I think pretty much everybody at the time who's even uh, remotely acquainted with the Bible understands that very clearly. He comes out of Babylon, goes into Egypt. He has this papyri. On the papyri is a drawing, which we now have as facsimile number one, but it suggests to Joseph Smith's mind a sacrifice. Mm-hmm. It appears to be a sacrificial scene. Okay, so now this is going to end up being Abraham being sacrificed when he's a young person as part of his standing up against all the idols in Babylon. But there's a problem. And the problem is, is that this is not a Babylonian papyrus scroll. Mm-hmm. This is an Egyptian papyrus scroll buried with Egyptian mummies. So there has to be the Egyptian connection. And therefore, I think... That accounts probably for why it is that the book of Abraham has this strange idea that in Babylon, in Ur of the Chaldees, the Egyptians had their priest. So there's an Egyptian influence in Babylon, which is not something that we know from history that that actually was not the case at any point. There's no Egyptian influence all the way over into Babylon, into Ur of the Chaldees, into that location where the story starts. But from Joseph Smith's perspective, he's got a story about Abraham's youth and why it is he leaves Babylon. It is contained on an Egyptian scroll, and therefore there has to be an Egyptian influence in Babylon at the time that Abraham is attempted to be sacrificed. Precisely. Precisely. And that's so great. And in fact, let me add, I've just pulled it up. I love this um, little section from Adam Clark's commentary on the Bible from 1831, which we know, and as I think you've discussed on your podcast, right, has influenced uh, Joseph Smith's inspired revision of the Bible, as recent studies have shown. And as uh, a study will show coming out through Colby Townsend, um, had influence on Joseph Smith's production of the book of Abraham, sorry, the book of Moses in the Isaiah sections. Um, so we, we know he's using this, but here's, here's Adam Clark. Be cast into the midst of a burning fiery furnace. This was an ancient mode of punishment among the Chaldeans. If we credit the tradition that Abraham was cast into such a fire by this idolatrous people because he would not worship their idols, end of quote. So, yes, you're precisely right. There is a tradition that Joseph Smith and his contemporaries would have been aware of, of Abraham um, being uh, cast into a, into a fire because he refuses to um, worship idols and that he is almost killed or sacrificed. Well, Joseph Smith doesn't go there, but he uses that tradition based upon the pictographic representation that is in his hands of, um, you know, of a mummification process taking place. Right, exactly. And so then you have the, the situation where apologists look at these ancient accounts and traditions of the attempted sacrifice of Abraham in Babylon not in Egypt, but in Babylon by Nimrod. He's usually the one who's uh, involved with this, right? Which itself is a replication. I don't know which one comes first, but it is the same story basically as the three Hebrew children found in the book of Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Mm -hmm. And they get thrown into the fire, but they come out unscathed. Well, the same tradition applies to Abraham, actually in the same place because it all happens in Babylon whether it's Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego during the Babylonian captivity, right? Or Abraham 
before he comes out of Babylon, which at least is, is placed way before the Babylonian captivity, but it's the same kind of story. So now you have the, the I almost said Egyptologists. I meant apologists. With John Gee and Kerry Mielstein, it can be the same thing. But the apologists now say, well, look, there are these ancient accounts of the attempted sacrifice of Abraham when he was a young person. It's getting thrown into a fire. Book of Abraham says uh, being sacrificed on an altar with a knife, right? But for them, that's close enough, right? There's, there's no ancient tradition anywhere, of which I'm aware, of an attempted sacrifice of Abraham by a knife on an altar. It's always getting thrown into this furnace. So they can come up with the stories about the furnace, and usually what they'll try and do is say, well, it's a, in general, it's an attempted sacrifice of Abraham. We have the same thing reflected in Abraham chapter one. How could Joseph Smith have known while omitting intentionally or not the sources that were available to book to Joseph Smith in the books he had that do mention the same tradition about the attempted sacrifice of Abraham by throwing him into a furnace. Precisely correct. And in fact, very good. In fact, that section from Adam Clark that I just uh, cited is indeed in his in reference to what he's talking about with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the book of Daniel. And I would, um, I'd say, you know, I, 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 nothing comes to mind off the top of my head. It's been a while since I've looked at this uh, secondary material that evolves uh, in Judaism and early Christianity. Um, out of the Abraham lore. Um, it's been a while since I've looked at a lot of that stuff. There, there may possibly be a story where he is nearly sacrificed in a parallel way to Isaac. And I'm not saying there is, but the point being is, you know, even if there is, that's not evidence that this is historically uh, an ancient account. In fact, what we've just outlined and we've shown is that Joseph Smith is a, is aware of these traditions and sources and then uses what is actually in front of him to create the narrative that we encounter. Right. And I will tell you why it is that I am certain that there is no such account anywhere. <laughs> cool. Yeah. Because I've got in front of me the traditions about the early life of Abraham, this massive volume which collects stories about Abraham from Christians, from Jews, and from Muslims. It yeah. is massive. You know the volume I'm talking about, right? I do. You know, I, uh, I, when we moved, I downgraded my library significantly, and that is one of the books that <laughs> I got rid of. I, I, and, and I've been regretting that because I'm like, oh, I could, I could go back and kind of see what they're doing there apologetically, and I'd be interested in it, but well, I no longer have that one in my library, unfortunately. Well, it's a huge book, and by that I mean just the size of the book as well as the fact it's about, it's over 500 pages long. And what the three editors, John Gee, John Twetness, yeah, John Gee, John Twetness, and Brian Howell did, right? They collected all, all the stories they could find about Abraham with the sole purpose in mind of making references, which they do in footnotes throughout two different parts of the book of Abraham to show these connections with antiquity, right? That's the whole point of this book. And there's nothing in this entire book, any story, anywhere from any religion about Abraham as a young person trying to be sacrificed by sticking a knife in him. Yeah, and you're right, because if there, if there had been, they... They would have found it and included it, no doubt. They'd be trumpeting that from the rooftops. Absolutely. Okay, now we've got to get to the closing part, but it's still a very important part because here's where Joseph Smith does something really, really interesting and really 
with an authentic touch, which ties into some of the earliest Hebrew thought regarding the God and the council of the gods. And that's where, you know, you're going to take off. But here in Abraham chapter three, now it segues into the last part of the chapter where it likens the stars that they've talked about, which are in order one above another to the spirits and the divine beings, which also are going to get ordered one above another. In fact, that transition, that segue happens in verse 18, where it ends talking about the stars, where it says, how be it that he made the greater star? Then you get a semicolon, and here's where the switch happens. Now we segue into, as also, if there be two spirits, and one shall be more intelligent than the other, yet these two spirits, notwithstanding one is more intelligent than the other, have no beginning. Okay, so here's where he segues into this discussion, and he'll talk about uh, the Lord, and he'll talk about this, uh, I don't know if he actually uses the term counsel, maybe he does, I'll let you talk about that. But I think that one of the reasons this is interesting is not only because there's a parallel between the stars and the divine beings, and one of whom is Abraham, we find out, right, many of the noble and great ones, but also because this ties into an ancient idea that People, especially great people, were represented in the heavens by stars. So Abraham 3 connects the stars with the people and the great ones, and yet that seems to be something that happens anciently. I mean, we even have uh, remnants of that with us today. I was thinking when I was driving into work this morning about how we do this, and I mean, if there's somebody who's a celebrity, what do we call them? A star. Yeah. yeah, there's a reason. We don't even think about it because it's just part of our, our normal language. But we call them a star. And the idea is that every single person on the face of the earth who is alive has a star in the heaven that represents them. And if you're an important person, then you have a big, flashy, shiny star, right? And if you're one, if you're Radio Free Mormon or somebody like that, then you've got maybe a star that's very, very dim and you can't hardly see it at all. Maybe you need like a Hubble telescope to see it. But really, but then they have the idea of falling stars, right? What does a falling star mean? It means death. Yeah. yeah. And the reason it means death, we sort of get this idea today that if we see a falling star, it means somebody's going to die. But anciently, my understanding is, no, it didn't mean somebody was going to die. It means it meant somebody died. Because when a person dies, their star now leaves the heavens and it falls out of the heavens. It wasn't understood as being a meteorite or something caught in the Earth's atmosphere, which burns up upon uh, re-entry, or entry, I should say. Um, no, it's an actual star that ends up being extinguished as it falls from heaven because it represents the death of the person on the Earth. And, of course, we find reflections of that in the New Testament, where when Jesus is born, what kind of star does he get? I was going to say, exactly. That's exactly what, the remember, the wise men will say is, where is he who is born king of the Jews? For we have seen his star. His star in the east, right? Yeah. Yeah, because a brand new star appears, which lets them know, logically, within that framework, right? Somebody very important just got born. Yep. So they search their scriptures. They come upon, what is it, uh, Micah? Mm-hmm. Is it chapter two? Yep. Something about uh, Bethlehem Ephrata. Mm-hmm. And being the greatest of all. So they know it's going to be in Bethlehem. They know something, you know, they know because these are smart Persian guys, right? They're back from Babylon with all this knowledge about astronomy, which is where the Magi probably hailed from. And they head off to Bethlehem. 
and they want to find where Bethlehem is. So they, they find it and they find Jesus and everything is wonderful and everything's hunky-dory. By the way, there's also a similar tradition about Abraham and stars. And if I can read this to you really quickly. Yes, absolutely. Um, great. I know you've heard of this before, but these are uh, the book of Jasher. I'm still reading from this big compilation, the traditions about the early life of Abraham, by the way. And uh, it says this. And it was in the night that Abraham was born. Or it says Abram, excuse me. It was in the night that Abram was born that all the servants of Terah, his dad, and all the wise men of Nimrod and his conjurers came and ate and drank in the house of Terah and they rejoiced with him on that night because he's going to be a dad. And now here's what happens in chapter 8, verse 2. And when all the wise men and conjurers went out from the house of Terah, they lifted up their eyes toward heaven that night to look at the stars. And they saw... And behold, one very large star came from the east and ran in the heavens. And he, that one one large star, and he, it's personified, right? Mm -hmm. And he swallowed up the four stars from the four sides of the heavens. So Abraham's birth is also heralded with a star. His star is even better than Jesus's because it eats up four other stars, right? But even this idea about this, this star running in the sky, moving in the sky, it's similar to the idea that we get in one of the gospel accounts. It's either Matthew or it's Luke, one with a nativity account, which is where the star goes before the wise men and then stops over the place that Jesus is. Yes. Yes. Perfect. That just, that's so important. It really, it, it, it shows us what's happening there in terms of the influences that Joseph Smith um, is going to be aware of because of his studies and his education, his background in theology uh, that are incorporated in, you know, in unique and beautiful ways into the creation of this book of Abraham. Right. And so I, I start to see why it is that it took a lot of time for Abraham chapter three through five to sort of cook in and percolate in Joseph Smith's mind, or as Terrell Givens would said, his prophetic imagination, because lots of things are coming together and he's incorporating a lot of things. And he's doing some very interesting things here in chapter three, where he sets up the stars and now he's going to liken the stars as would naturally be the case with the noble and great ones, which he's going to represent as a plurality of divine beings who are going to end up having a council preparatory to creating the earth with which he starts in chapter four. Now, could you please talk to us about the council in heaven as understood in Abraham chapter three and how that relates to the early understanding of the Hebrews regarding the gods. Yeah, uh, this is in fact something that I did spend a lot of time uh, working with apologetically for many years. In fact, I would, uh, I'd share that back in 2007, um, I, uh, I published an article with the Farms Review, which at the time was uh, edited by Daniel Peterson. And the title of the article was, Ye Really Are Gods? A Response to Michael Heiser Concerning the LDS Use of Psalm 82 and the Gospel of John. Um, it was a pretty lengthy uh, uh, essay. It, 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 uh, it was, let's see, pages 267 through 313. So, um, Anyway, Michael Heiser, for our our listening audience who isn't aware, is an evangelical scholar, Bible scholar, who has done a lot of work with the 
divine counsel of God motif that appears in the Hebrew Bible. And uh, he invited Daniel Peterson to participate in a conference, an evangelical conference in connection uh, with the Society of Biblical Literature convention that happens annually. And uh, in that, in that uh, Michael Heiser gave a, a critique of Mormonism's use of Psalm 82, specifically um, a, an article that uh, Daniel Peterson had written many years ago. And for those who aren't familiar, Psalm 82 is the psalm that states uh, God stands in the divine uh, in the divine assembly. It's a translated typically like in the NRSV now as divine counsel. He judges among the gods. Psalm 82 is a very important text for the Bible because what Psalm 82 represents, we believe, is a shift from henotheism where Israelites acknowledged that there were lots of gods in the universe, but they only worshiped their God, Yahweh, to monotheism. Because in Psalm 82, God stands up in the divine council and says to the other gods who are worshiped um, by other uh, by other by other peoples and revered by them, he says, you have not done well in your assignment. You have not treated the poor and the needy and the widow with respect. You are going to die like humans die. And the end then of Psalm 82 tells Yahweh to stand up and um, take control over the entire cosmos. So many scholars, um, myself included, believe that Psalm 82 represents a significant shift theologically in Israelite belief, where um, moving towards monotheism, where the other gods will be declared useless and ultimately be given a death sentence. But it still reflects that divine counsel motif and image. So Michael Heiser, anyway, Daniel Peterson wrote an article about this um, for Farms and then it was critiqued in this evangelical conference by Michael Heiser. I then responded and interacted directly in that farms review with Michael Heiser on this topic of gods and, um, and the council imagery. And I, uh, you, and I, I, I drew upon that quite extensively. Um, and maybe I'll just, uh, I don't know, read a little section of it. If I'll pull it up and what I wrote, um, Let's see, uh, as it pertains to the book of Abraham. Okay, and I write this. The book of Abraham, and on, on page 270 of that Farms Review article I wrote, the book of Abraham refers to the intelligences that were organized before the world was. Abraham 3, verse 22. In this council setting, God stood among those that were spirits, and he saw that they were good. Abraham 3, verse 23. According to the prophet, and I'm quoting Joseph Smith now, every man who has a calling to minister in the inhabitants to the inhabitants of the world was ordained to that very purpose in the grand council of heaven, end of quote. Though the concept may seem odd to some Christians, these teachings are not completely absent in the Bible. The notion of God assigning members of his council to assume important positions of administrative responsibility appears in its earliest form in Deuteronomy 32, verse 8, quote, when the Most High, meaning the Most High God, and let me interject and state that this is important because if there is a Most High God, then there are gods that are not quite as high. You can't be the superlative. You can't be the Most High God unless there are gods underneath you, right? 
Right. When the Most High God apportioned the nations, when he divided humankind, he fixed the boundaries of the peoples according to the number of the gods. That's Deuteronomy 32, verse 8, the NRSV, because the NRSV reflects the number of gods um, in connection with humanity. Uh, the earlier King James accessible to Joseph Smith does not. It says according to the n- number of the children of Israel. I don't want to get too bogged down as to why the NRSV changes that. But well, it's because it goes back to earlier texts and the Masoretic text on which the King James Version was based, right? Yeah, and the Dead Sea Scroll version of Deuteronomy mentions gods, which, is, which actually then um, sustained the belief of biblical scholars up to that time that that would have been the original version of it once that text was found that it was later changed to be the number of the children of Israel to reflect the later monotheism that was embraced by um, later the later Jewish community. Um, so anyway, that's why the change and now why um, more recent translations will go back to that. And then I write, for Latter-day Saints who are at least in part um, – as- who at least in part associate the council with humanity, a seemingly parallel notion appears in the council story featured in the book of Abraham. And then in my essay, I cite Abraham 3.23, which is the, the text that says God stood amongst the souls and said, these are the great ones, and Abraham, you are um, like this. Um, anyway, I, I'm not going to read the whole essay. Our, if, our, if our audience is interested, they can pull that up. It's available online. Um, it's it's quite the interaction, and ultimately, I stand by all of this. It is a remarkable connection that we're seeing presented here in the Book of Abraham, linking symbolically stars with members of that council, and then the council formula, which is very typical for the ancient Near East, um, where a a god will call in council uh, the members of the assembly and. Uh, various proposals will pre- will be presented on how to resolve the problem. We see this in Enuma Elish. And then a decision will be made and a volunteer will be chosen to go forward and, and resolve the concern. That basic structure that I identify and outline in this essay appears in Enuma Elish, it appears in the Bible, and it appears in the Book of Abraham. And it is quite a remarkable connection that the prophet Joseph Smith presents here from my perspective, even to this day as someone who fully embraces the 19th century origin of this text. And of course, Job chapter one. Absolutely. And, and, and what I don't want to pretend that it would have been impossible for Joseph Smith to have come up with this structure on his own. You've already talked about some of the ancient traditions of stars and linking them with humanity that uh, were available to him. We see that. Um, the very formula of the divine council structure is is you know found in other parts of the Bible. So, it, but but what I do see it as to this day, referring back to my article, um, is Joseph Smith. And I guess my agreement with Terrell Givens is Joseph Smith is a great compiler and an amalgamator of traditions that he's encountering into the creation of a fascinating scriptural text and a theological assertion and construct, which, you know, is so central to contemporary Mormonism to this day. So the book of Abraham is an extraordinary document, not only historically, but theologically. And uh, even though it does absolutely come to us through the mind of Joseph Smith. Right. And to my mind, uh, setting aside 
or setting side by side all the different apologetic arguments that have been put forward, Egyptological, blah, 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 for the book of Abraham. I think that the presentation of a council of divine beings acting in concert to create the earth in this case, but acting in concert is probably head and shoulders above any other connection that the book of Abraham presents with antiquity. Yeah, I absolutely, I hundred percent agree with you. It's, it's extraordinary. So it really me, is. Now, did you have any ideas as to how Joseph Smith might have worked his way into this? I mean, obviously it's possible that he's restoring something that was had anciently and to give him his due. And I want to do that. I want to be as fair as I possibly can. Joseph Smith said that he was set to restore things that had been had anciently and also things that had never been revealed. But in this part, he says, I'm going to restore things that have been had anciently. And in this case, he did it. He, he did. He, uh, he, he, he did. Yeah. It's a, it's a, it's, I, I, I can't deny that. It's, it's absolutely a beautiful reflection of what we see happening in antiquity, but we should also link that with the fact that this represents Joseph Smith's, um, evolutionary views regarding divinity that happened throughout his ministry, right? So at the time that he produces these, this section of the book of Abraham, he's fully comfortable in talking about the gods go forward and create the universe. And he's fully comfortable with doing this and revising Genesis 1 to not be monotheistic, but to be, um, I don't know if it's polytheistic, but it's because we're not worshiping these gods, but at least henotheistic where there are gods participating in that. But as we've talked about, this is something that Joseph Smith is going to inherit from Joshua Satius in his understanding of the word Elohim, which will fascinate the prophet. And um, it's right there in Genesis chapter 1, verses 26 and 27, if you're a careful reader, because remember, God speaks in to a, an unspecified audience there. He says um, in t- verses 26 and 27, uh, let us make man in our image and in after our likeness. And then the commentary is given in the image of God, he created them male and female. One of the things I did in my dissertation, actually, RFM, was analyze the word Elohim there that is translated singularly. And I put forth a grammatical argument that it should be gods in the plural. Um, because there are male and female divinities that human beings are created in the image of, according to this theological perspective. So literally what I argue there is that it, it, the text should be read in the image of gods, he created them male and female. But this is Joseph Smith's evolutionary theology that he has at this point, because um, although later in his life, the prophet is going to preach the concept of multiple gods and even human theosis, where human beings become divinities. Uh, There was only one God in Joseph Smith's original revelations. Um, The Lord whom Joseph claimed to see in his earliest account of of the first vision from 1832. Remember, that is the earliest account, the only one penned in his handwriting. And he says, not I saw Heavenly Father and, and Jesus Christ, he just says, I saw the Lord. Um, in fact, a, uh, a pattern really emerges in which, in which Mormons consider to be uh, Smith's inspired revision of the Bible, 
that was influenced by Adam Clark, as we know now, because Smith consciously, if we read that carefully, he removes many of the references to the plurality of gods from the King James Version of the Bible. Um, so, you know, I could provide some examples of this because I've spent some time looking at this. It would, it, it's, it's very interesting. For example, um, oh, let's look. Uh, you know, for the book of Moses, we read, Moses, thou art in similitude in mine only begotten, and mine only begotten is and shall be full of grace and truth, but there is none other God besides me. That is, you know, that is the LDS book of Moses. That is the manuscript one, which will become the book of Moses. There's no other God besides me. It's very monotheistic in the book of Moses. And we read uh, that the only begotten, the Son, and there's there's no one else, and it perfectly reflects Joseph Smith's 1832 account of the first vision, right? As do his other changes that he makes to the King James Version of the Bible, um, including Genesis 11, verse 7. Now, the King James on that is going to read, let go to, let us go down, and there confound their language, that they may not understand one another's speech, referring to the Tower of Babel. So here's God speaking to the non-specified divine council of deities. That's the way that contemporary biblical scholars would understand that passage. But what did Joseph Smith do when he revised this in his inspired translation? Let me read it to you. The Lord came down, beholding the city and the tower, and the Lord said, Behold, the people are the same, and they all have the same language. I, the Lord, confounded their language, that they may not understand one another's speech. Notice that he takes a passage that is a divine counsel passage with the reference to gods in the plural, although non-specified, and revises it to reflect the monotheism that he embraces theologically at that point in time. We see the same thing happening, of course, all throughout the Book of Mormon, because the Book of Mormon is going to present God the Father, Jesus Christ, and the Holy Ghost as one God, and have some very significant text that point to monotheism as Jesus and the Father as one, that Joseph Smith actually will later go in and revise in the subsequent edition to the Book of Mormon to reflect his developing theology. So, um, yes, RFM, this is a this in the book of Abraham is a is a hit. It's a restoration, if you will, or bringing us back to ideas and constructs that were held by ancient Israelites that are manifested in sections of the Hebrew Bible. But it's something that Joseph Smith evolves into, and that we can document historically taking place by looking at his previous scriptural creations, including the book of Moses itself, which is very monotheistic, as I've just identified. I'm just checking to make sure I'm, yeah, I'm not muted anyway. Sorry. I'm, I'm muting myself off and on. I have to check and make sure whether I am before I start talking. No, no. So this is really interesting because it does appear that Joseph Smith's ideas about God evolved over time. And you've talked about the Book of Mormon, where it's very much uh, a one God kind of scenario. Uh, it, it's similar to Trinitarianism. Some have more um, definitely identified it as modalism which is a form of Trinitarianism, but still basically one God, three different manifestations of God, one God manifesting himself in three different ways, that being modalism. It talks about God himself shall come down to the earth and he will offer himself a sacrifice for the people. 
So that being Jesus Christ, that's also that's still in the Book of Mormon today. So we've got that. I thought it was fascinating what you said about the changes that Joseph Smith made to Genesis in his Joseph Smith translation, taking things that are plural and making them singular in order to accord with his then current understanding, which would be 1831 to 1833 when he's doing the JST. So very much a one God kind of system. Then you get to 1835 when the lectures of faith are included in the Doctrine and Covenants, and those were taught at the School of the Prophets in Kirtland from 1834 to 1835. They get put in the first part of the Doctrine and Covenants, the first edition in 1835, and that now has changed. Now it's evolved. Now there's not one God. Now there are two gods in the Godhead. There is the Father and the Son. The Father has a is a being of spirit still. He doesn't have a body yet in Joseph Smith's theology. And then, but Jesus, of course, has a body of flesh and bones because he got resurrected in it, right? But God the Father is a being of spirit. The Holy Ghost is not yet a personage. He is simply identified as the mind of that of God and Jesus that they share together. So he's not a personage. The Holy Ghost is not a personage yet until you get to 1842 or 1843, where you now have Doctrine and Covenant, section 130 or 31, where it gives the, the famous uh, proclamation and definition of the Godhead that all Mormons are taught and investigators are taught that that God has a body of flesh and bones as tangible as man's a son. Also, the Holy Ghost is a person as a spirit. Otherwise, he could not dwell in us, right? So it is this evolution of the idea of the Godhead, as you say, from singular to a duality and then to a, uh, a three-person Godhead. And then you also get this plurality of God's even above and beyond that, with Joseph Smith starts enunciating the King Fala discourse shortly before he's killed in 1844. So yes, he does evolve into this idea of a plurality of God such that he is comfortable doing something absolutely radical in Abraham 4 and 5, which is reworking Genesis 1 and 2 and saying gods throughout. Instead of just God, he's saying the gods did this and the gods did that. And it does sound like polytheism. He seems very, very comfortable in doing that. Although, you know, it's not specific and who are we worshiping, right? And you don't worship Jesus according to Elder McConkie, except the Book of Mormon says it's okay on certain occasions. Regardless of that, regardless of that, Joseph Smith works his way into this plurality, right? By the time of the Book of Abraham. And it does occur to me that if you have a plurality of gods now, and a plurality of gods are involved in the creation account in Genesis 1 and 2, then it almost necessarily gets you into the idea of a council. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. In, in fact, if, if, okay, that was such a beautiful summary. You, you just really articulated what I was trying to say very concisely. And I think in a way that our audience will have no trouble following. Um, I just, because I'm looking at these examples that I've pulled out. Just let me share this one. This is so great because this is Moses here giving commands in Exodus 22, verse 28. The King James reads, Thou shalt not revile the gods, nor curse the ruler of thy people. What does Joseph Smith do in his JST translation? Thou shalt not revile against God. Mm. Singular. And and and, and the, 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 there are many examples that we could pull. This is just a really fun one. And so this is why I know we're getting a little off here, but um, apologists who are trying to argue that, um, you know, that that first vision account, the initial one where Joseph Smith says, I saw the Lord, um, does not necessarily need to exclude God the Father, which is where what it's it's taken today by, by apologists. Well, 
the problem with that argument is that they're not looking at the greater scriptural production that Joseph Smith is producing during that same time period, which is radically monotheistic. And that um, tells us that Joseph Smith actually meant what he said when he said, I saw the Lord, because at this point he believes in God singular. Right. And if you haven't said it before, of course, that's written in 1832. Yep. Precisely. One other thought that occurs to me, along with this plurality of gods, almost naturally leading into an idea of a council of gods in the creation, is the fact that Joseph Smith had already established a certain system of government in the church. And that system of government is the same kind of government we have today, which is government by councils. Yeah. So very, very, uh, I think it's famous that he has this establishment. You've got all these different councils whether or quorums, whatever you want to call them, a council of the 12 and a council of the 70, and you've got a council over here and a council over there. And that is the way the church is governed and it's run and it's operated. And so having a church that is already established as being run by council and decisions being made in council, and then with this developing uh, understanding of a plurality of gods by the time he produces Abraham chapter 3, it makes sense to take a plurality of gods and frame them in terms of the way the church is run, as it is on earth, so let it be in heaven, that the heavens will run the same way as the church, which is by councils, and who would be in those councils except for gods and divine beings? Mm, precisely. And with that, I would again refer our listening audience to the wonderful um, YouTube presentation that Dan Vogel did on Abraham chapter 3 and its connection to um, the Egyptian grammar and alphabet. And one of the things that Vogel does very well there, have you seen, have you watched that, by the way? Um, no, I'm sorry, Dan. Sorry, yeah. I need to get around to it. it it's so wonderful. It, it's about 45 minutes long. I would highly recommend it. But one of the things that he shows that's so fascinating is exactly what you're talking about, is that in that Egyptian grammar and alphabet, the structure of the stars and the cosmos parallels the structure of priesthood organization that Joseph Smith is putting together in Kirtland, Ohio. So, and that is ultimately what will inspire, as Dan shows clearly, Abraham chapter three and the cosmological account presented here. So it is actually, even the fact that you have three governing bodies or planets, and then you have 12 under others below them. I mean, it, it's the priesthood structure that Joseph Smith is um, creating at that time in Kirtland and then projecting into the cosmological account, which will eventually appear in Abraham chapter three. So maybe I was on the right track. You're absolutely on the right track, which is why I had to had to piggyback on that and, and draw people to that that wonderful presentation. It's fantastic. Well, I want to bring up one last point here, and then I'm going to turn it over to you for your closing comments, okay? Okay. Okay. But now that you've taken the time to outline Joseph Smith's developing theology regarding God and the plurality of gods, from singular to duality to three to... Infinite, infinite number of gods, really, by the time we're in 1844, I wanted to talk about something which I think is my favorite example of gaslighting from Joseph Smith. And this comes at the Sermon at the Grove. It's the sermon after King Follett Discourse, which was April of 1844 at the General Conference at that time. But this is in June, June 16th, uh, just shortly before he's going to be killed. He's going to be killed on June 27th. So he has only a couple of weeks left in the world. As of the time he's giving the Sermon at the Grove, this is his last statement on the subject. Uh, 
and he's going to talk about the plurality of gods. That's one of his main his main themes in this talk. Now, gaslighting is a term that frequently gets misused, and we use it a lot in post-Mormon circles to talk about what the church does, but a lot of times we use it to talk about just saying something that's not true, right? That That's gaslighting. Well, technically, no, that's not gaslighting. That's just called lying, right? <laughs> gaslighting is a very certain kind of lying. And what gaslighting is, is you talk about things that have happened. It could be things that are, that are happening, but usually it's things that have happened in a different way than they actually happened with the intent to get the people who are listening to you to remember them the way you're telling them they happened as opposed to the way they actually experienced them. Okay. That's gaslighting. And so here's a great example of gaslighting. It has to do with the plurality of gods. So here's what Joseph Smith says in the Sermon at the Grove. I will preach on the plurality of gods. I have selected this text for that express purpose. I wish to declare I have always and in all congregations, David, when I have preached on the subject of the deity, it has been the plurality of gods. It has been preached by the elders for 15 years. Now, he's saying this in 1844, so he's going back to 1829. He's saying that not only he, but everybody in the church, the elders of the church, have always preached the plurality of gods. And then he goes on to make it even more clear. I have always declared God to be a distinct personage, Jesus Christ a separate and distinct personage from God the Father, and the Holy Ghost was a distinct personage and a spirit. And these three constitute three distinct personages and three gods. So this is the classic example of gaslighting because here he's telling his audience in 1844, he's always taught that the three members of the Godhead are three distinct and separate personages when actually that's not at all the way it happened. Back to 1829 and 1830, he's teaching there's one God. And then 1835, he's teaching there's two gods. And the Holy Ghost is not a separate, distinct person. It's just the mind of God. And by the time he gets up to now the 1840s, he's teaching that there are three gods and they're distinct personages. And that's all fine and good. But then he kind of steps over the line, I think, a little bit when he says, not only is this the way I've come to conclude that they are or the way that God has more fully revealed to me that they are. But no, this is the thing I've always taught ever since the beginning. I never taught anything different. And unfortunately, um, for Joseph, the historical record, as we just briefly illustrated, um, and we could provide a lot more evidence for that, it just doesn't show that to be the case. He didn't. Right. But it's just one of these ideas. And Joseph Smith is so perplexing to me because I did a whole podcast called The Amazing Contradicting Joseph Smith, Mm -hmm. where he seems to have no problem contradicting ideas that he has said that were revealed to him, even if they were incorporated in scripture. I gave at least a dozen examples of this in that podcast. I'm very proud of it. It's all original research. But but this idea that he is always growing and expanding. And in order to grow and expand, you're going to have to contradict things you said before. Because if you're going to be bound by everything you said before, then eventually and pretty quickly, you're going to end up in a prison where you can't say anything new. Right? And I call it being root bound. And that's kind of the way Mormonism is today, which is it can't expand anymore because 
if it expanded beyond what it has now, then it would start contradicting things. And it can't be that way. They can't allow that to happen. So therefore, any growth that happens is just circular and trying to fill up spaces that are already in this little box that they've constructed, which is Mormon doctrine. But Joseph Smith does not appear to be bound by that. And he continues to expand to come up with new ideas, even at the expense of contradicting things he's given before. He seems to have no problem with that. That's fascinating. I think it's exciting. I think it's a positive thing. I present it as a positive thing in the podcast. But then I find something like this. Because here, what Joseph Smith is indicating is that he recognizes that it's important to communicate that the most recent doctrine and revelation he has received is not something that contradicts anything he gave before. But he's actually going to gaslight his audience to try and get them to believe that he's always taught it this way. In other words, he's putting a value on consistency in doctrine and not overturning doctrine and not contradicting prior doctrine. So I'm just going to have to chalk this up to once again, I have no way of understanding what was going on in Joseph Smith's mind. He is a man who is full of contradictions all over the place. Well, I think the reason he wants to do that RFM is because um, early converts to the church, including uh, Lorenzo Snow and others, were strictly devoted to monotheism. And when he when he branches into this uh, this new theological perspective, I wouldn't call it uh, I, I wouldn't call it polytheism, but um, but but definitely the attestation of multiple divinities in the universe and human theosis. That is hard doctrine for people like Brigham Young and John Taylor and Wilford Woodruff and and these early followers of his to embrace. We have their records. They talk about, man, this is this is controversial stuff at the time period. Um and they are they are not it's it's you know there there's a lot of concerns that he's a fallen prophet by preaching this sort of viewpoint. So um there's a reason why he is gaslighting at, at this stage and and it's to to answer those criticisms that are being raised against him by those who are, you know, coming out of an American um, Christian mono radical monotheistic perspective and are struggling with these new doctrines that he's presenting in Nauvoo. Yes. And yet they are among his audience. Yeah. And you've got people in his audience. Not everybody's a new convert in Nauvoo shipped over from England or wherever, right? You've got people who are among the first individuals in the church. Brigham Young, he's not at the very beginning, but he comes on board pretty soon thereafter. You got Heber Kimball, you got all these different people who can remember the way things were, who presumably were in the School of the Prophets in 1834 and 1835 and learned the lectures on faith, which by the way, are contained in the Doctrine and Covenants, even when Joseph Smith is giving this this, uh, sermon at the Grove, right? And yet, I don't know. I don't know what they're thinking. Are they thinking, oh, I guess I guess I've remembered it wrong. That is what Joseph Smith always taught. Or are they thinking, uh, that's not quite the way I remember it? Yeah. I, it's a good question. One, unfortunately, we can't answer. But, um, you know, I have to wonder how, um, you know, I don't know that, uh, that Joseph Smith's scriptural productions uh, – were significant to his early followers. Um, I mean, they were significant as a sign of his prophetic authority, but even Joseph Smith himself doesn't really, in his, the latter part of his ministry, use the Book of Mormon and quote it for his theological sermons. He's moved on from the Book of Mormon by the time he gets to this stage of his prophetic ministry. 
that's certainly true for the um, the early members. It wasn't so for much the the doctrine that was presented in these scriptural texts. It was just their physical attestation that represented his ability to receive insights from from God. So it's what they represented rather opposed to what they they had. So I don't I don't consider these early men and women critical readers of the prophets' uh, material, and it would have been. Um, I, I suppose for most of them would have been, uh, you know, pretty easy for them to just say, I guess he always has taught this. And I think that's typically what we want to do because I remember reading this in teachings of the prophet Joseph Smith and just looking at it and taking his word for it. Well, if he says he always taught it, he must know because he's the one who taught it. So he must have always taught a multiplicity of gods. And so then we go back and we start reading things like the book of Mormon and we try and read a plurality of gods in it. We try to read the three, person God head that we have in Mormonism in the 1840s into the 1829 Book of Mormon. And the same thing with the um, the lectures on faith. Bruce R. McConkie did that, right? He talked about the lectures on faith as perfectly teaching exactly what it was that Joseph Smith taught in the 1840s. And then he goes into all sorts of convolutions in order to make it match what Joseph Smith believed seven years later. So I guess there's um uh, this idea that Joseph Smith did always teach it, and we're going to twist and rest the texts in order to make that so. Yeah, and that's not unique to Mormons by any stretch. I mean, that's really the way historically that um, the Bible has been approached um, by Jews and Christians alike prior to the time of the Enlightenment. They would treat it as a special book, so words would have special meaning, and they'd be constructed in such a way to reflect whatever contemporary theology that the reader had at that particular moment in time. And it's really the enlightenment that will start to uh, change um, humanity's approach to reading the Bible and recognizing and accepting contradictions when they appear, and then linking that up with specific historical time periods. Right. And what you said there about contradictions was the key, because the natural tendency of Christians or Bible-believing people is to believe one set of doctrines, and then to interpret the Bible in such a way so that they all harmonize, all the different scriptures harmonize to support that one set of doctrines that is believed by the reader. And for Mormons, they even have a bigger job because they've got four standard works, right? They got the Bible and the Book of Mormon and the Doctrine and Covenants and the Pearl of Great Price, but they have to go through that same process and they have to make all four standard works support what the current leadership teaches. So that everything has to be harmonized. No contradictions will be allowed because then that throws a monkey into the wrench or something like that. And one of the biggest breakthroughs, I've had a number of turning points in my, my career, but one of the biggest breakthroughs that I came to understand was that what I was doing was I was trying to harmonize all the scriptures to support one view. And whatever that view is, it applies but harmonizing all the scriptures to support one view. And what I was doing in order to accomplish that was I was making the scriptures that disagreed with my view agree with it, and I wasn't just looking at what the author was actually saying. So in other words, when I, when I came to the point where I realized my insistence on harmonizing the scriptures prevented me from understanding the scriptures, That was a huge breakthrough, and that through understanding the scriptures and allowing the different authors to have different views and different opinions, 
about different subjects, even gospel-related subjects, even what's necessary for salvation, even what God is like and how many gods there are and whether there's a council of the gods and whether there's not, whether there's a fight between God and the um, Tiamat at the beginning of creation or whether it's something else. When I allowed them to speak for themselves, all of a sudden, I could give up harmonizing the scriptures and I could learn what the scriptures actually had to teach me. Yeah, beautifully said. And on my journey, of course, is very similar to that RFM in you know, that's in essence, what you've defined is historical critical analysis. Um, and that's what I was exposed to as a graduate student, first as a master's student, and then as a doctoral student at Brandeis University and learning to read the Bible that way. And, and once I was able to read the Bible that way and to see it, text made sense. I didn't have to try to, you know, go through all of these convoluted readings to harmonize them, but I could let them speak for themselves and see how they worked historically for that ancient author and an original audience. And that was an exciting journey because complicated works like Isaiah um, began to be intelligible. And it's certainly true for even a complicated text like Abraham chapter three, because that is complicated. I mean, how many times of, I, I don't know, Latter-day Saints don't focus a lot on the astronomy. They will usually just go down and, and start reading about the, the exchange, which we, you know, in the council where, uh, Jehovah's chosen and Satan's thrown and cast out as the falling star. But the rest of that is pretty complicated until we start to read it and see it in its 19th century context. And then all of a sudden it, it starts to make sense. And that's an exciting journey to undertake. Um, I view myself, I don't know, you know, apologists tend to divide the world up into apologists versus critics. And, and speaking personally, I, I do not identify as a critic. I identify as a critical reader but I am not a critic. I'm not a critic of Mormonism or Joseph Smith or any other religion. I love these texts. I'm fascinated with them. I, as I said in a previous podcast, I, I love the book of Abraham as much as John Gee and Carrie Milstein do. I just read it very, very differently. And it reflects my love for putting these texts into their historical context and in the process then understanding what they, what they're saying and what they were intended to do at the time period. And to me, that's an exciting journey to undertake as an historian. It's something that I love doing. You know, I remember when I was coming to this understanding, I was on a message board and I can't remember who the poster was, but we were talking about this subject. And I think he's probably the one who helped enlighten me on this. There were a number of things that happened, but we were talking about the scripture in the new Testament where Jesus is talking about I think it's I think it's Psalm chapter the eighty second Psalm right verse yeah. one that you were talking about sure. where, where he talks about um, uh, what does he say um, or maybe it's one ten I'm sorry it's probably one ten but he talks about um, how he's the son of God right if there be gods many and lords many that's it if the scripture if it says that there be gods many and lords many and the scripture cannot be broken why do you condemn me for saying I am the son of God. Yeah. And he is alluding to, to, to Psalm 82 there. You're right. It is 82. Okay, great. He's alluding to that. Yes. So, but, and, and so we're talking about this and then I don't know, it, it occurred to me that we, of course, what he's saying is the scripture can't be broken. If it says this and the scripture can't be broken, in other words, you can't break the scripture. You can't interpret it some way other than what it's obviously saying. Then why are you getting mad at me for saying I'm the son of God? Okay, it's a great story, and Mormons use it to good effect, right? Mm -hmm. God's many, Lord's many. But um, 
then it occurred to me, it was like a epiphany of sorts that I break scriptures all the time, or at least I used to, when I was reading them, trying to harmonize. When you harmonize everything, you're breaking scriptures right and left to get them to harmonize. And the expression that came to my mind as if by revelation from God, a still small voice, if you will, said to me, the only scripture that can be broken. No, wait a second. The only scripture that can't be broken is the one you agree with. The only scripture that can't be broken is the one you agree with. I'm trying to do this from memory. I don't have a note here or anything. In other words, if you don't agree with the scripture, yeah, you can break it. In fact, you will break it. You will not listen to what the author is saying. You will interpret it some crazy other way to make it not conflict with your beliefs. Yeah, that was it. The only scripture that can't be broken is the one that you agree with. So anyway, that's that. I'm going to end here with this one more statement, okay? I know I said I would end and then I give you the last word. I lied because there was this one idea that came to me and um, this has nothing to do with the scriptures. It has nothing to do with astronomy. It does have a little bit to do with Egyptology and scrolls because here's the idea is that these mummies have scrolls with them. We know from Egyptologists today that the scrolls are funerary documents. It's a book of breathings, which is an abbreviated form of the book of the dead, which is a roadmap and a help for the mummy himself or herself to get from the tomb to heaven or their version of heaven, right? To a place where the, <clears throat> where the sun sets and to enter into the presence of the gods, including Osiris. Excuse me. So yeah, so this is the point of this. And it has been commented before, and I think I've mentioned it, that it doesn't make really any sense for a person who's relying on this scroll to give them the directions and the passwords and the keys, the signs, the tokens, whatever they need to enter into the presence of the gods, the Egyptian gods. It doesn't make sense that they would have a story about the life of Abraham on the scrolls, right? That's not going to help them at all. Yeah. but then it occurred to me it's actually worse than that because remember what abraham chapter one says about the egyptian gods (laughs) yeah that they are their their faults and and uh and evil yeah they're idolatrous there's one true god that's jehovah so it's even worse than that so it's like if you're an egyptian and you have a scroll and you're going to take the scroll with you into the presence of the Egyptian gods and the presence of Osiris and Isis and all this wonderful stuff that's going to happen to you in your understanding of the afterlife. Why are you going to take with you a book that says that the gods that you hope to win favor with and enter into the presence of are a bunch of hooey? <laughs> yeah. You might, you, might, you, might, you might piss them off a little bit, right? No kidding. It would be like an evangelical Christian saying, I'm going to go to heaven and I'm going to take with me a copy of the Book of Mormon. <laughs> yeah 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 you're not going to be well received it's a very very important issue that you raise there rfm without question well thank you and you've raised a lot of important issues too now this time really really i'm going to give you the last word and then no, we'll sign off you're too kind i uh, i first of all just this has been a wonderful experience for me thank you so much rfm thank you to our listening audience what you know when I reached out to you, I thought, oh, the, let's do a couple hours and talk about anachronisms in the text. And it ended up being um, I, about nine hours now, probably by the time it's all said and done. And uh, I am so grateful to those who have joined us on this journey and for this chance to share. 
I would, I would state that what we were talking about just a minute ago should not be seen in any way as a negative thing. Just the opposite. It certainly has proved that way to me in my life, that in as much as I have approached religious text critically and historically and have seen the contradictions and the various viewpoints that have been presented, it has allowed me to be spiritually independent. So I'll find a part from the Bible, for example, or even from maybe Joseph Smith's text um, where he deals with racism. Um, in, instead of sweeping that under the proverbial apologetic rug, I'll take a look at that and say, no, I there it is. Now I understand why it's there, and I disagree. And in the process, therefore, reach further spiritual enlightenment because of that, because of identifying. Sorry, I got my little terrier dog that's breaking things up right there. But. Everybody's a critic. I know. But the point is, is that it it allowed me to be able then to look and to think critically about what was being presented and to pick and choose what I found inspirational in my life. If there's part of the text that I disagree with, I'm free to reject it because I know its origin and I know what it's saying and I'll learn from it that way. And if there's something that I do agree with and I want to bring into my life, that is good. And that spiritual independence has meant everything into my it, for me in my life as I have journeyed through and tried to um, you know, deal with issues that have been problematic from my perspective that have come to us, well, even through well-meaning church leaders. And I mentioned my own journey in connection with the November 2015 policy. The whole reason I was prepared to, to look at it critically the way I was is because of this training and background. And I'm so grateful for it because um, to me, that was an important part of my spiritual journey. So, I, I feel like what we have shared is, is nothing but positive because once people recognize it, it creates that type of independence, which will allow them to grow and develop as, as human beings. And it certainly has proven true in my own life. And so it's a, it's a wonderful journey and one that I'm so grateful that you and I have been able to take together and to share with your audience. Well, thank you so much, David. Speaking globally, from my own personal perspective, being able to delve into these kind of issues and read the text as it is and put it in the context from which it comes and try and see what the authors really mean, it has taken Mormonism, which as a TBM for decades, became the most boring subject on the face of the planet. And all of a sudden, when you flip the switch and actually start allowing yourself to look at what's really going on, and give yourself the opportunity to say, I accept that, or I don't agree with that. All of a sudden now, Mormonism has become, for me at least, the most fascinating subject on the face of the earth. Yeah, well said. Same for me. Same for me. That's about all for tonight. Until next time, this is Radio Free Mormon, signing off the air. <laughs> <laughs>